I, I, I was reading the Superman Red and Superman Blue before. Alright. Oh, Enjoying it. I read the first two issues. Were they good? Uh, well, the first issue of the art wasn't very good. Who was it? Ron Friends. I'm not having you dissing on the Friends, Master. Well, 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 well no, because the art didn't fit the dialogue or anything right. Right. Okay. You know, the second issue I read, I can't remember who wrote it, but it wasn't very well written. It was all confusing. Is it not David Michelini by that point? I don't know. It was some skull nuclear dude who thought Lois Lane was Zelda. <laughs> it's probably still Louis Simonson then. See, I've not read all of them yet. I'm only reading them because I'm reading JLA again after reading All-Star Superman this week. Right. And you want to read all the uh, Superman Red, Superman Blue? Well, because Grant Morrison is very much... Right. He's, he's blue at the moment, but I'm not going to explain why in my st- uh, story. You'll have to go and read his adventures to find out why. That's fair enough. Yeah. Well. Should we should we get going, even though I can hear the theme from Emmerdale in the background on the TV, because it's probably a bit loud? Sussel? No, Mum obviously didn't hear me. Oh, okay. Turn it down! It's, it's, it's a pity none of that will have been recorded. From file A56-7W, classified top secret subject is... H's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Welcome to Hey Kid Comics, a weekly comic podcast all about comics. Oddly enough. Yes. From the title. And hosted by me, Michael Leyland. And. Oh, hello, I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm his dad. Yeah. Today's very special, isn't it? Well. Almost. In two, two short days. Two days. Yeah, two weeks. weeks. Michael will turn 17. Happy birthday, Michael. Two weeks and two days. Two days. Maintain the mystique of the show, dude. Yes. Two days for that. Two yes. weeks for us. That's not three or two weeks. Wow. I remember when you were only 15 and we started this show. Do you remember anything that happened before that? Oh, God, no. You're lucky I, bur- I remember your birthday. Yeah. I barely remember your brothers. I never remember your sisters. I don't know. The only one that's important is your mum. But if we get your mums, I'm in trouble. Everyone else, your mum's does remind me. Um, that seems fun. So this is Michael's birthday show for this year. And fortuitously, your spotlight fell on your birthday show. It did. We planned that, didn't we? Because the episodes were so meticulously planned. <laughs> I did have to teach you what I was doing now. Yeah, when I pointed out this was your birthday show, you oh, thought, I, wait a minute. I will take full advantage of Dad's generosity. <laughs> then there will be less angry emails this way. 
No, no, no. We encourage angry email. Oh, yeah. Like angry birds. I'm, I'm away to Scott Gardner's. <laughs> What best to say, dear Michael, happy birthday, but you're wrong. <laughs> I decided not to listen to your episode. <laughs> Even though it was your birthday. <laughs> but when I discovered who your spotlight was on, I switched off my MP3 player. <laughs> Hi, Scott. <laughs> well, we guaranteed that he listens to at least the first five minutes of this show yeah. anyway. Because there's one listener. It's always nice to have one listener. Hello, open listeners. Even though you sub eight. Yes. Yes. I think we doubled that. Did we? Yeah, I think we're up to 16. Yeah. I'm quite impressed by that. 16 people listen to us talk dribble by comment. Hello, 16 lovely listeners. We love you all. We do, actually. We appreciate our lovely listeners. Um, we get upset when we don't get email. We do, we get upset when we don't get email. Speaking of email, I, I like what you did there. Oh, yeah. That was almost a professional segue, wasn't it? Are you doing the emails today, since it's your show? You can do the emails. Do you want me to do the emails? Give me another present and read out the emails. I haven't got you a present. Well, Through no fault of my own. Yes. He says. He says. I ran out of money. And that was your sister's fault. Anyway, our first email tonight is entitled the John Byrne episode. I'm assuming this is about the John Byrne episode. Yeah, that would be a logical assumption. Yes. It's from the mighty Michael Bailey. Hello, Mighty Michael Bailey. Hello, Mighty Mikey B. <laughs> Mikey B. Oh, yeah, he was Mighty Mikey B, wasn't he? M- M- Mikey Mike B. <laughs> Greetings, mate. Hello, Michael. Before I get into the episode proper, I want to address the Freebird controversy. There's controversy? Apparently so. As you know, I live just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. While I'm not in the middle of nowhere, I still live in what they refer to as the Deep South. This area is kind of strange, with all kinds of blue laws that are outdated and out of step with the modern world. For example, until just recently we couldn't buy beer on Sundays for reasons I don't want to get into, because it might cause you some problems. Anyway, one of the laws in this area concerned the Waffle House, which is a chain of restaurants that appeal to those that like greasy, cheap food. And waffles. Ah, and waffles. <laughs> I was just going to say, a chippy, by any other name. So somewhere you can't read a book. This is not a cooker that a bill, hey, why are you reading for <laughs> So I don't end up serving waffles. You've listened to far too much Bill Hicks of late. Well, I'm reading Love All the People at the moment. Oh, right, okay. This is not a criticism, as every once in a while my wife and I crave this sort of thing. Getting back to the matter of hand, there is a law in this area that states that waffle houses have to play Freebird a minimum of four times a day, though it is strongly encouraged that you play it more. <laughs> to get it more than four times there's only 24 hours in a day I know and that song's clearly 15 hours long I made you cut off at least four hours of it as I spent a good deal of my misspent early 20s hanging out in waffle houses because there's nowhere else to go at two in the morning I had to hear this song quite a bit ah so maybe they're equivalent of kebab shops I was never a fan of the band that produced this epic waffle on a stick waffle on a stick that, that's We should so totally go to America and paint that idea. Sure. I've actually thought we should go over there and open a proper British fish and chip shop. We'd make a killing. Or just to show that our food doesn't suck. I wouldn't say fish and chips don't suck if cooked prop- improperly. We've cooked properly. Yeah. Um, so I'll be cooking the chips then. Where was it? Oh yes, the whole southern rock scene makes me feel kind of dirty. So I hate Freebird. Like a lot. So any cutting of Freebird is okay in my book. Okay, Michael. <laughs> Deep home Alabama. Is he not like that one either? I'm not. You know that song was written to be a dig at Neil Young. Was it? Yes. I did not know. Because 
Young said. He didn't say anything negative about Alabama. He just said it was my favorite places. Right. Twitch lit and skin and roll. Dog. Got right. Dog. Wrong he is. <laughs> Give me that guitar. I quite like Sweet Home Alabama. I didn't like it when Kid Rock ripped it off. Yeah. Anyway, on to the matter at hand. John Byrne. Well, the 60s Batman series, the Incredible Hulk television series, Superman, the movie, and the Super Friends were responsible for me loving superheroes. John Byrne is what got me into collecting comic books. Back in the spring of 1987, I picked Superman issue 8 and Action Comics issue 591 off the spinner rack and began my journey as a comic book collector and Superman fan. Byrne was the first creator whose name I knew and respected, and I was crushed when he left the Superman books in 1988. Not quite as crushed as I was when he left Fantastic Four, I'll wager. God, that was a dark... Yeah! I picked up that issue of Fantastic Four and I opened it and it's like, this isn't John Byrne. What? And then I read Did the next not... issue yeah. and then I dropped the book. Did not have a mighty leaving no, issue. No, no, yeah. just gone. Did an REM. Did a yeah, just left. Shut the door and left. So why did you drop it that quick then? Because it wasn't any good anymore. In my humble opinion, I have since read those issues that followed him and they're not that bad, really. Yeah. That was just very disappointing. going through a very angry phase. I was, yes, I was an angry young man years ago. Well, it was the vertigo years. I was an angry young man. What's that song? Angry young man. No, That's going to bug me now. Yeah. Oh, it's Talking Heads! Okay. This was a factory. Now it's a peaceful oasis. You got it. Nothing but flowers by the talking head. Anyway, I really went on a digression there. <laughs> Sorry about that, lovely listeners. Um, well, I didn't follow his return to Marvel, mainly because my money was limited and there were still Superman books to buy. I did track down back issues of certain comics he had drawn, which is how I discovered his run on Fantastic Four. In 1991, my eldest sister began dating the man that would eventually become her husband. Apparently, he was something of a comic book fan and had quite the collection when he was in the process of selling. I managed to nab his burnt FF issues, and in the summer of 1995, aka the summer Mike was a lonely 19-year-old dealing with the fallout of everything that happened during his senior year of high school, I finally sat down and read the entire run, or at least the entire run minus an issue here and there. It was epic. I am an emotional reader, so the fact that I became invested in the world Byrne had created is no surprise. The quality of the writing and art and the amount of emotion and drama that Byrne packed into that run of FF combined to create something that I consider to be truly special. There have been a handful of times in my life as a reader of comics where a run of a particular title made such a strong impression on me that I still carry those feelings to this day. Burns FF is one of those runs. From the fun beginning on the whole trial of Galactus to Sheely Hulk joining the team, this was a superhero comic at its finest. I still vividly remember the issue was Sue lost to the baby. That last page literally drove me to tears, and the fact that the page was mostly black with a single panel in the middle has stayed in my memory for 17 years. I had to sell those issues at one point, to eat, but I have about half of them back, so one day they will be mine once more. Yeah, it's, it's really sad, that one. Sue loses the bet. It is. Because so Reed... Is you know, kind of. Um, no, not at all, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, Reed spends the entire issue trying to get Dr. Octopus to come and help him. Right. Because Sue's suffering from some kind of radiation thing that's complicating her pregnancy. And he gets him to listen to him and come and help. But he's too late. And it was quite sad. Good issue, though. Extremely good issue. One of the best Doctor Octopus stories ever told. Ironically, not in a Spider-Man book. There was one in an Iron Man. In the Invisible Man, just before Fear Itself, in which um, Doctor Octopus completely bitch slaps Tony Stark. 
and he tells him this device, <laughs> and um, like only he knows how to def defuse it before it causes a catastrophe. And he, he makes Tommy Stark get on his her knees and beg Doctor Octopus and call him his master and all that, <laughs> and, and then he'll defuse it. And then at the very end, when Tony Stark gives in and does all that, the Doctor Octopus just turns around and says, uh, Alright, there's nothing to defuse. And Tony's like, But but it's a bomb. You said it would cause a catastrophe. I didn't say it was a bomb, I said it was a device. He's a tricky bugger, isn't he? <laughs> Is that a Matt Fraction one? Yes. Right. Nice reference to the Fat Man on Batman podcast theme during your FF commentary. Punch those dirty turkeys in the face. Indeed. Alpha Flight! Man, I love me some Burn Alpha Flight. You'll notice that I wrote Burn Alpha Flight, and I did that because after Burn left the book, it attempted to become the gold standard when it came to the term hit and miss, and so you were quite right to bail when you did, because some of this stuff that was done after Burn left was interesting, especially when it came to Heather, but mostly it was a collection of very bad ideas. For instance, Puck wasn't a dwarf, but a normal-sized man that ran afoul of a demon of some kind that kept him small of stature. Yeah, I think I'd read that somewhere. It sounds dope. So yeah, walk away after issue 28 and you won't miss much. I don't feel like I have. Like Andy, I was saddened to learn that Byrne didn't think much of his work on Alpha Flight. I thought he redefined what a team book could be. By telling stories that focused on one or two members and then bringing the team together at the end of the year for a mission or adventure, we got to know who these characters were before we saw them in danger. This made me connect to the characters and care what happened to them. And it was pretty daring to kill off the team leader 12 issues in, especially in the way Byrne killed him. It let you know that anything could happen in this book and no one was safe. The second year was interesting because Byrne mixed up the format again by telling three or four stories at once over the course of 12 issues. So you'd get a little bit of Puck, a little bit of North Star, a little bit of Sasquatch, etc. In each issue and at the end you have a complete story featuring those characters. I can't decide which of the two formats worked better. On one hand, it's nice getting a done-in-one or done-in-two story about any one of the characters. On the other hand, it's neat to see more of the team in bite-sized segments. Both have their pros and cons, but in any case, it made for an interesting reading experience. Um, yeah, Bernal said he was just tap dancing on Alpha Flight. Okay. He said he really didn't have any idea what to do with the characters. He really didn't have any long-term goal for the series, and that's ultimately why he left. Because he was he like, was, I don't just write him. Yeah, I really don't want to write. Don't know what I'm doing with these people. Quick aside, tying both Alpha Flight and FF to Superman, because as we all know, it comes back to Superman. The cover of Fantastic Four 249 has Gladiator hoisting the thing into the air with one hand and holding on to Mr. Fantastic in the other as Johnny and Sue lay in heaps on the ground behind them. Byrne would reuse this composition for the cover to Superman issue 8, which was my first regular Superman issue. This is a pretty obvious swipe, but it doesn't end there. The splash page to Superman issue 8 is a bird-chested Clark Kent ripping a tree out of the ground as Lana watches from a nearby fence. There was an issue of his Alpha Flight run that had Sasquatch in the exact same pose doing exactly the same thing. Nothing earth-shaking, but I thought it would be worth mentioning. He has done a commission of that cover where it is actually Superman holding the Fantastic Four. Okay. So it is it's quite interesting. Finally, Batman and Captain America. I will admit that I was a bad burn fan when it came to reading this book. It was only last year when I finally got around to getting my hands on a copy. I feel bad because I like Batman. I like Captain America. I like Burn. But which is best? No, Mike won't get that, will he? No. I bet they don't get to Harry Hill in America. And I like period pieces. The story did not disappoint, and I like that it fits neatly into the generation's timeline. This book would have been considered a prestige format book, as prestige format and bookshelf format were pretty much the same thing. This is definitely one of the better Marvel DC crossovers of both the 90s and for all time. 
In closing, thanks for kicking off this Spotlight series with John Byrne. While I think there are times when Byrne's art and writing were not the best, I still have an immense amount of respect for the man. As I mentioned earlier, he's responsible for getting me into comics, becoming the Superman fan I am today, and because of that, he's indirectly responsible for all of my blogging and podcasting efforts. Sure, his personal opinions can rub me the wrong way, but there comes a time when you have to separate the artist from the art. Thanks again, y'all, and take care. Cheers, mates. Mike. Thank you, Michael. Very personal opinions. Oh, you know, every now and again, he'll just shoot his mouth off about something. He'll just hang your head and go. <laughs> Fair enough. But like Michael says, you know, don't confuse the man with the work. Our next email: Gabriel Jimenez is back. Hey, Gabriel. Hello, gnarly dudes. See what he uses, gnarly too. Gnarly. <laughs> It's been a while since I've written in. I know I'm no Michael Bailey nor a Luke Giaconetti, but I still like to keep in touch. I've also befallen, I've fallen behind on listening. I'm currently on the second part of the New 52. So there are tons of things you've talked about that I would love to chime in on. Always nice to have you chime in, Gabriel. And he sent us a little picture of him and his missus. That's or missus-to-be. That's very anyway. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Well, like, there's, there's like a nice picture of, just had one as well. of him and his missus. <laughs> yeah. Do you think me and that should do one of me and Ange? Maybe. And have a little picture just of me and Ange. Or maybe it's, it's in, in the podcasting world to get rid of all those stereotypes to do with comics. You have to have a picture of a, a woman with you. That's fair enough. Yeah. I'm all for destroying stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. First off, thanks for reading the last email I sent you guys. You're very welcome. We read all our mail. I played the bit where you read it for the wife and she liked hearing it. We'll send you a guys a pick or two next time. Don't have pics with me on this computer. Guess I'll have to wait a bit then on Andrew's sage advice. <laughs> Oh, we're all still waiting. <laughs> oh! Although it might be a better idea to receive Mrs. Leyland's tips on how to deal with a full-on comic geek for Mrs. Jimenez. Angela! Coming, dear. I was just making the tea. I'll try not to burn the coffee. <laughs> yes! Yes, I did! No, he was shouting the other woman. Yeah, the other Angela that I sleep with. You watch other, you know... You do watch films, Apparently I do, yeah. Mrs. Jimenez is asking for tips on how to deal with living with a comic book geek. Do you have any sage advice? Words of wisdom? Grin and burr it. <laughs> That's it. I hate alcohol helps. Alcohol. Alcohol. So, so the fact that you actually tolerate this and encourage it actively... Don't tell people I actively encourage. Little you know, miss. You know, actually, this morning she told me to watch an episode of Star Trek. Did you? I did not. She did. I did not. There was this, a basket, this is very interesting. There was a basket shark on TV. Oh! You love the Doomsday Machine and don't pretend that you don't. He said, have you ruined it for me? No, no, your mum thinks that the Doomsday Machine looks like the basking shark. Okay. Which she, it does. She, she, she told me to watch it this morning. So you, know, you have no pearls of wisdom for Mrs. Jimenez. As long as they don't fall on you, you'll be okay. Yes, because if your bookshelf <laughs> fell on me, then I would be dead. Oh, oh you, the box on your wardrobe have almost killed me loads of times. I nearly fell off the ladders the other day getting boxes of comics down, didn't I? <laughs> it was funny watching him. Oh, it was hysterical, yeah? I mean, it was a shock. Oh, I'd try explaining that in A&E. He fell off the ladder while getting his comics down. <laughs> anyway, should we carry on with Gabriel's email now? Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for your interjection. Very nice skirt you were in today. Oh, flashing as well. Hey, Michael's all uncomfortable. <laughs> 
Anywho, moving on, good on you guys for the Flashpoint review. By the time the series started making noise, I'd been off the DC bandwagon for a while, so I did not pay any attention to it. I did hear later on that it was a big deal and it set up the new 52 and that it was an interesting story. That info did not help convince me of reading it, but thanks to you I didn't have to. In the immortal words of Michael, sounds alright. Sounds like there are a couple of good ideas and moments though, but truthfully Barry Allen Flash does nothing for me, and the story that centres around him sounds rather unappealing. So right off the bat, that's one thing going against it. Regardless, I'm very glad to have heard about and at least have an idea of what's going on. I prefer Barry to Wally. Do you prefer Barry to Wally? I do. See, this is, see, there is an argument that you shouldn't even know who Barry Allen is, given that he died in 1985. Yes, but because of my parents. There is that. Yeah, but see, Wally West was my Flash. But even though Wally West was around for like most of my life, like Barry Allen's still my Flash because of Final Crisis and such. Okay, fair enough. Similar thing to the new 52 episode, Gabriel continues. Like I mentioned before, I'm in the middle of one of those episodes, the Swamp Thing one, and while I don't have enough interest in actually going out and buying them, or acquiring them, I still like to have an idea of what's happening. Honestly, I'm not completely sure how I feel about the whole new 52 thing. My first visceral reaction is of disgust and annoyance, cannot help but feeling that it's a desperate attempt to remain somewhat relevant. On the other hand, hell, at least they're trying something. I've mentioned before how the whole direction DC took since Didio came around made it clear I was no longer considered part of its intended audience, and while it was very painful, I've learned to accept it and let go. With that in mind, the decision to start anew and grab as many new readers as they can makes sense. I hope it works out for them, and by Michael's reaction it seems that they're doing a good job. You see, I, I don't get all this negative talk see, about the new 52. You're just not down with that at all, are you? No, because, see... Yeah, the, the DC may have gone now, but I think people would enjoy it a lot more if they actually like stopped, bought a few issues, and read them. And well, Gabriel, a lot of it is good. Yes, see, that's that's my Ideal's thing. bad. Comics are good. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I see, would. Gabriel seems to have done the thing that we've all done. I don't know how good Gabriel is, but he seems to have come through the other side, and now it's just like well, it's not really that big a deal. If you're not liking it, don't buy it, mm-hmm. and that's fine. I still, I still think a lot of it is worth a try. Yeah, there's a lot of it. I think it's the same with everything. 90% of it is crap. But 90% well, of everything yeah. is crap. Yeah. So, for me, I wasn't reading any DC books before the New 52. Now with I'm reading... Of with the exception. But I was only getting that for you. Yeah. So technically, I wasn't buying any DC books. Yes. The one book I was buying was for you. But at the same time, there could have been plenty of great DC books out there you just weren't getting. Yeah, but I wasn't interested in what they were putting out. I mean, if you look at it, they were following a very set template. They would create a story that that Dan DiDio would then say, let's make this into an event. It happened with Blackest Night, happened with Grant Morrison's Batman R.I.P., happened with Superman New Krypton. And then it became this big, sprawling epic. I only mentioned three. No, but DiDio made them not self contained. But at the same time, they were. Not no, really. Blackest Night only tied into the Green Lantern. But he made on. it this event with lots of tie-ins. Yes. And your collector's mentality is you have to read it all. And therefore it was, he was gouging the small amount of readers he had left. And you know what I'm like. I am very stubborn yes. and quite rebellious but when it comes Night to stuff like that. But the type of event like Infinite Crisis. No, it's not. You can, you can skip but over Infinite John's Crisis and said, be confused. You skip over Blackest Night, you're just fine. But Johns has said he wanted Blackest Night to just run in the Green Lantern book. Which and Didio made it its own miniseries and have lots of tie-ins. Yes, with the exception of the miniseries and the odd tie-ins, it still is self-contained. But there's the still lots comics. of it, is the point I'm trying to make. 
Yes. DC, prior to the new 52, was Didio gouging what little fan base he had left. It was event to event. Yeah. But at the same time, loads of people said there were the little hidden gems, like Secret Six. Yes, and Villains United apparently was very good as well. Okay. But I didn't read any of that. But anyway, I wasn't really that interested. But with the new 52, I'm reading a lot more DC comics. Yeah. Not just the ones I buy for you. I wasn't reading Nightwing. I've not read Nightwing since Chuck Dixon left. Loving Nightwing. Yeah. Not read All-Star. Not read Jonah Hex ever. Loving All-Star Western. Mm-hmm. Not read Justice League in any regular since Grant Morrison was doing it. And while I wouldn't say I was loving it, I'm reading it. Yes. But largely because of you. I think Scott Snyder's Batman is a great book. I think Action Comics is interesting. Yes. That's it, up to I'm still not. Yeah. I'm on the fence with action. But it's an interesting take on Superman. I mean, like, it has turned into a Grant Morrison comic. I'm enjoying it now. But well, I see, I don't like started, it when it's a Grant Morrison comic. When it was started, I thought it was dull because he was coming out of his Super Gods phase. He was very much, oh, I'm going to do a regular superhero story with no Morrisonisms. And now there's Sigram. lots of Morrisonism. See, I'm buying more... your comics for a reason. I want you to do Morrisonism. See, I'm buying them when I don't want him to do Morrisonism. Yeah. So it's always interesting to juxtapose. So, so now it's become very much a headache a page. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the new Superman Man of Steel that Scott Snyder's doing, I'm sure that'll be good. Yes. Because... Yeah, with it being a new beginning, you're getting loads more characters who no one would ever heard of before with writers and creators that wouldn't be on the books. So I have, through you, I have got to the point of being able to see how this may be a good thing. Yeah. There are still some things that rub me the wrong way. I don't like Starfire anymore, whereas I did. Blame I, the deal. Well, I don't like that the Teen Titans never existed. I don't like... Teen the, Titans too. I don't like this five-year timeline drivel. Even you've said that doesn't work. No. I'd have push. Next, what he's gone through four robins in five years. Well, that just yeah. does not work. Yes. If they were serious about the reboot, what they should have done was, if they were going to do the five-year timeline, what they should have done is have Dick Grayson just quitting being Robin, or not bother, and becoming Nightwing. Five-year timeline, and introduce Jason Todd or Dick Grayson or whatever. And I'm sorry, all the other Robin and Batman, Batgirl fans, but they were gone. Yes. And that's the only way I would have bought this five-year timeline thing. That if he'd been Batman for two years and then had Dick Grayson for three and Dick was now off being Nightwing in college mm-hmm. and, he'd, and he introduced because a new Robin or whatever. Damien makes everything wrong then. Damien is ten years old. Okay. Yeah, Damien really doesn't he fit. He was Batman when he made little Damien. Yeah. So the Damien and Damien Al Ghul thing. Yeah. Just do it. See, it doesn't fit. They shouldn't have bothered with the five year no. timeline. They shouldn't they shouldn't have said anything like see the problem they have with this is the problem they have with later iterations of Star Trek. Right. The minute you pin down when exactly this takes place There are so many flaws. There are so many and so many people who will be looking for flaws. Yeah. yeah. So many people who just can't go along with it anymore. Nowhere in the original seventy nine episodes of Star Trek does it say what year it takes place. Yeah. Based on dialogue, it's either the twenty second century or the twenty seventh century. But you've got a whole yeah, but there's a whole lot of gap there for you to be able to say, well, duh. It could have taken place anyway. Yeah, but the minute you say this is the 23rd century, you've got people going, well, what year does that take? And, yeah. and then you have books like Star Trek chronology pinpointing everything to the year. And it's like, how much more can you bleed the fun out of this? You know, Grant Morrison said the same thing to Did the he? Guy. Yeah, what about? this guy asked, like, how old 
is him like Bruce and Dick Grayson meant to be and he's just turned around and said what kind of stupid question is that it's not real you know you give a comic to a kid and he's he going to enjoy it he's, people say kids don't know that, don't know what's real or not they do they know better than Adam, uh, the adults yeah I'm loving Dick Grayson as Batman and especially Damien as Robin fantastic so <laughs> uh, my question I hope is easy I'm just curious how old is Bruce Wayne and Tim Drake and these characters, I can't figure it out. I don't know. You got, it doesn't matter, right? You must understand it. <laughs> these people aren't real, okay? <laughs> and like, well, Batman's like a mythical figure. I'm, 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 I'm being funny, but I'm not being funny because they, they, they don't live in the real world, right? And I've got, this, I've got this interesting theory that I've been developing. You know how they always say about kids? Kids can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality. And that's actually you know, any kid, if a kid's watching The Little Mermaid, the kid knows that those crabs that are talking are nothing like the crabs on the beach that don't talk. Now, a kid really knows the difference. Then you go to an adult, and adults cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality, because you, you, know, you bring them fantasy, and the first thing they say is, how did he get that way? Why does he dress like that? How did that happen? It's not real. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> Right, but, right. And beyond, beyond that, you know, you're dealing with characters, they, they're not real, they exist on paper, they're real in that context, and I always say they're much more real than we are because they have much longer lives and more people know about them than know about you or I. But at the same time, we get people coming into superhero comics and saying, well, what, why does the power work and how can Scott Summers shoot those beams and what's the science of that? It's not real. There is no science. The science is the science of anything can happen in fiction and paper and we can do anything. So I always find it really weird that adults come into fictional worlds and their first obsession is to make sense of them. Because we already got the real world. Why do you want fiction to be like the real world? We've got the real world. <laughs> you know, and fiction can do anything. So why isn't it? Why do people say, let's ground this? Or let's, how do we make this realistic? You can't make it realistic because it's not. <laughs> you know, and so basically, Batman is 75 years old. <laughs> and Robin is 74 years old. You know? <laughs> But they never grow old, and because they're different from us, they're paper people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of them. It's adults who bitched about Robin, isn't it? Yeah. When we were a kid, we didn't care that Robin was 14. No. We didn't have any interest in it. We didn't care that Batman was doing child endangerment. We didn't even know the words child endangerment. Because it was fun. Yeah, we just thought this was cool. Yeah. And yeah, there's just so many people who will just who will lives to poke holes in things. And I've kind of gotten to the thing where, all right, the five year thing, yeah, but Scott Snyder's Batman is top notch stuff. Yeah, I still think there's flaws in that. Well, there's Mostly flaws in how he set out. I mean, you were arguing before about everything being an event. Scott Snyder's yeah, Batman running Batman everything's an is event. event to and event. It's even going event, event to event because you've got another crossover coming. But Spider Man's the same at the minute. There's no breathing room between stories. Yeah. There's no word that you think, well, this is a couple of days later, so maybe he's had a break. And you're left with the whole, when does he sleep? Yeah, but the events are crap for Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man's quite weak at the minute, isn't it? Anyway, we've got distracted by Gabriel's... Sorry, Gabriel. 
Jeez, continues Gabriel, I sound like a bitter old man, so I'll move on to some other topics you've covered, where I'll still sound like a bitter, cranky man. Spidey movie. Let me begin by saying this is one of the most unnecessary and redundant movies I've ever seen. I thought the previous Spider-Man origin movie was okay, you know, good enough, so the retelling of it seems like such a letdown. We have another origin of Spidey. Ah! I want to hit the floor running. I want fun and adventure and Spidey doing his thing, not going over the same story over and over. Yes, we've seen that. I thought the Peter Parker bits were better than the Spider-Man bits. See, that's... I liked Amazing Spider-Man, but I like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. I like two. They couldn't have told the story in Amazing Spider-Man in continuity with Sam Raimi's movies. No. So then you've got the thing as doing reboot, or do we just ignore them and have him and be Spider-Man? More people pointing flowers. Yeah, at and it's, it's it's I don't know. I would have to watch it. I enjoyed I, it I while did, we were at the cinema. I did get the feeling that they changed his origin just to separate themselves from the Raimi films. Yeah, and I like the web shooters. Aside from that, the movie was alright. Emma Stone was the highlight of the movie. She's super cute, and I think she did a good Gwen Stacy. Andrew Garfield was okay, better than Toby, I think. I do agree with Andrew that the costume was pretty crappy, and they should have kept the previous movie version of it. The story was not very good at all. All of New York citizens turning into lizard? Seriously? That's it? The pacing was slow. The villain was boring and looked kind of stupid, and Captain Stacy ends up dead? Well, he kind of ends up dead in the comics. Aside from Emma, I thought Dennis Leary was the best character in the movie. I've never been the biggest fan of the Raimi Spidey movies. I thought the first one was pretty okay. Liked the second one better, though the third one was terrible. So I was hoping that this new version would reignite my interest in seeing Spider-Man on the big screen. But not so much. Six out of ten. He was Captain Stacy. Oh, him. Yeah. He looks like what's-his-face. Oh. Willem Dafoe. Yes. Ironically enough. Dark Knight Rises. Hated this movie. I'll start by saying that I did not like Batman Begins. I really liked The Dark Knight, and I was looking forward to the last one. I was terribly disappointed with the end of the trilogy. I don't think there's one aspect of the movie that I can say I enjoyed. I think the best thing, well, aside from Anne Hathaway's hotness, was Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Other than that, though, watching the movie was a painful experience. I did not like seeing Bruce in such a sorry state, especially since, as Andrew stated, we'd not seen Batman get that messed up before. I get that we're supposed to see his rise and fall and rise as Batman. It just made the movie that much longer and uninteresting. Plus, Bruce just came across as a mopey, whining, weak character. Sure, his girl died, and that's sad, but just like he's going to give up being Batman? Really? Lame. Also lame, the villain Bane. Horrible Bane. Not only did he look stupid with that gothy scuba respirator thing attached to his face, it also made him difficult to understand. It was a struggle trying to figure out what he was saying. What is it with having characters that can't speak clearly in these movies? His whole plan wasn't very interesting, nor did it have a point to it. It seemed very pretentious to me, having the whole theme of the movie being that the rich and powerful are needed in order to maintain a peaceful and functioning society. I get that they're trying to be topical with the whole 99% thing, but that was laying it on way too thick. You know, I'm getting worked up just thinking about this movie, and there's plenty left for me to rant at, but this is turning into a really long email, which I would totally understand you guys not reading on the air, and my wife's waiting for me to go upstairs and watch something on TV, so I'm going to leave it here. Let me just say I feel very passionately against this movie. I had a two-hour discussion with some friends over this movie where I felt my voice giving out. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for putting out a great show. Keep on listening, and keep writing it. Take care, guys. Gabriel Jimenez. Thank you, Gabriel. I think we've covered our thoughts on Dark Knight Rises, haven't we? I don't think Gabriel likes that. I'm getting that. Yeah. Dave Walker. He didn't mention it He didn't. No, he didn't mention it enough. Dave Walker emailed in. Flash episode plus rant. Did we cover a rant? No, I think he's ranting. Oh, right. Hola! How are things going? They're just fine. How are they with you? They're Birthday boy. 
Just writing to give my thoughts on the new 52 Flash. I think I have to agree with you that it's one of the best superhero comics currently available. It's one of the comics I look forward to reading each month, and that's not just because I'm a Flash fan. Francis Manipal's art is fantastic, and I think the fact the artist and writer are the same guy allows for a lot of artistic touches that are thrown in. And pretty much every issue. The story's been excellent too, and I'm interested in seeing where the story with the rogues is going to go. Your episode regarding the issues was great as well, but due to the fact that I neglected to take notes while enjoying it, I don't have anything specific about it. See, about the writer-artist thing, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because... Go on. Well, now I'm all ronery in the sixth form, I have loads of things to think about. So now some, you've got no friends. Comics, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about the, so the writers being the artist thing. Now, at one point... It allows the artists to do things they want to do with the art, melding into the story. Mm. At the same time, they're artists, not writers. It depends. Is Frank Miller a writer or is Frank Miller an artist? A bit of both. Jim Stranka? Yes. John but Byrne? He made, they all made a career out of not only doing art but writing, whereas you've got two artists writing on The Flash at the moment. Yeah, but they're not doing a bad job of it. They're not doing a bad job, no. So if they're not doing a bad job of it... But at the same time, with Dark Knight, mm -hmm. I think Greg Hurwitz's stuff is much better than the... What's his... David Finch's pen stuff. Yeah. Mm. But I like David Finch's art. I don't like David Finch's art. Right. Okay. At times I do, but other times it's like, dude, your thighs are too big. Yes, that is particular. That's a good cover mm. for what we're going to cover later. But look at that arm. Yeah... And the thigh. And the thigh. Yeah, okay. Now, since you asked for a rant, here goes. I hate the art of Steve Dillon. Oh. With the fiery passion of a thousand suns. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he draws everyone looking pretty much the same damn thing, but something about it makes me want to punch something. He's the only creator I've dropped a book because of. I'm going to cry. Yes, I've dropped other books because I've not been enjoying them as much as others, but it's usually due to monetary constraints, forcing me to stop getting them. He's the only one where it's purely because of his art. I've been able to withstand his art for some things, but that was mostly because I was curious enough about the story to keep reading, despite the pictures. In my opinion, he's not that good. Oh, but... But... But we love Steve Dillon. I suppose you can't make everyone right. Uh, we like Steve Dillon, Dave. It's just you on your own, Dave. Hope that's a good enough rap for you and look forward to finding out that one of you has actually chosen Dillon to spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just insulted someone you find enjoyable. We haven't chosen Dillon. I'm gonna now. But there is a Dillon issue coming up. <laughs> I don't expect you to, I just think it would be funny when well, we did find it funny. I've just chosen my choices, actually. <laughs> We're going to do Steve Dillon, Rob Liffield. <laughs> no, 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 I've chosen my um, Steve Dillon and stuff now. Have you? Yes. So your third one's still up in the air now, have you changed it? I am now. Because my third one's committed now. Yeah, I think yeah. I'll do Heartland. And, you know, the Hellblazer spin Yeah, yeah. And You're telling people. And You're giving you peeking behind the curtain, dude. The Bill Hicks issue of Creature. Thanks again for all the great work you guys do. You're a virus with shoes, Dave. P.S. Castle starts back on the 24th of the 9th. Just in case anyone wanted to know, because I've not referenced Nathan Fillion or the show in this P.S. bit for a while, because the show's been not on. You know, Nathan Fillion likes Steve Dillon, too. <laughs> Luke Jacanetti's emailed in with Burn Baby Burn Disco Inferno. You see what he did there? I did see Very clever. Good. What it is, Jab Turkeys? Hey, 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 Luke, do you like Steve Dillon too? <laughs> I like his Huggy Bear opening. Yeah. What it is? What's the word on the street? Dude, I'm blind, I can't read. Well, this email has taken an oddly disco turn, hasn't it? Well, like Alice Cooper says, you can't kill disco. 
It just mutates into a more heinous and horrific form. Anyway. Hainous Or is that heinous? Is that know. another word I can't pronounce? Heinous. Heinous, 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 beans, like beans. If Boss Hog was a hyena. I see hyena. Tim Dukes. Tim Dukes. That was Roscoe. Well, no, I was doing like a hyena laugh. Oh, right. Anyway. John Byrne, as the email says. Byrne is one of those creators whom I've always had a certain appreciation for, even if I didn't actively collect him or seek out his stuff. Visually, his art is always clean and dynamic, and in most cases, I want my super hero art to be both of those things. There are times when scratchy or a more rough art style is appropriate, but if we're talking Superman or the FF or other bright daytime superheroes, the clean style works best. And Byrne is one of the legends of that paradigm. When you brought a comic which John Byrne had drawn, you knew it would be good. For me, that's a given. As a writer, I think Burns sometimes goes hot and cold in the end result, but almost always from a strong foundation. Let me expand on this. Oh, to keep the disco theme coming, let me preach on this, brother. Pretty much all the writers vary in the quality of their output. It's a simple fact that not all stories are as good as others, but some writers produce bad work which is simply rotten to the core. A bad concept is a bad concept. It cannot be saved no matter how strong the dialogue or action is. A bad concept for, say, a Superman story will never be a good story because it's built on an insecure foundation. Writers like Byrne, however, almost always seem to have a good foundation to their story, even if the end result is not so great. The setup is interesting and strong. I think sometimes he loses the plot in longer story arcs or gets sidetracked, but again, no writer is perfect, and generally in a Byrne story you're at least guaranteed something which is well thought out, which is more than a lot of modern writers. Other writers who fit this mould, in my opinion, are Chris Claremont, Mark Wade, Jeff Johns, Keith Giffen and Mike W. Barr, to name a few. My favourite Byrne run is his 20-issue stint on Iron Man starting in 1990. He came onto the book following the second Bob Layton and David Michelini run, and he essentially wrote two long story arcs. The first was Armour Wars 2, and dealt with the previously unseen foe using the microchip which had been planted in Tony Stark's spine after he was paralysed to physically control his body. With art by John Romita Jr., who always drew a very powerful Iron Man, the story followed Shellhead as he tried to regain control of his body and clear his name, all the while trying to discover who was controlling him. We got old school throwdowns against the Titanium Man and the Living Laser, and we also got one of my all-time favourite moments in Iron Man history. At the end of the story, spoilers on, Tony has finally battled his way to the HQ of the mastermind behind the plot. He faces down his foe who is wearing an armoured assault suit. As the two titans battle it out, the baddie pulls away and reveals his identity as Kirsten DeWitt, a rival to Tony Stark who was wronged by the hero some point in the past. Tony stirs at DeWitt and has no idea who he is. DeWitt's perceived slight at the hands of Tony Stark has been an obsession for his for so long, and one that we as the reader have been privy to for months, that when Tony reveals he doesn't even remember DeWitt at all and has no clue what he supposedly did to him, it's a fabulous moment where Byrne shows us the importance of perspective. He should Bendis wrote a story like that in Civil War. He probably did. Mm. Bendis has, has milked a lot of Byrne's stuff. Has he? Yeah, there's a lot of his Avengers stuff is from Byrne's run. Fair enough. Second storyline is the epic dragon Seed Stark, which steals with the Mandarin seeking out the origin of his rings and trying to bring a race of dragons similar to Fin Fang Foom to Earth. A really strong adventure story, including an excellent split issue where the top half of each page follows Iron Man while the bottom half of each page follows the Mandarin. Parts of this story were eventually adapted into the second season opener for the Iron Man cartoon series and was the main reason why Toy Biz made a Fin Fang Foom action figure in the Iron Man toy line, along with a couple of other dragons. He did that in an issue with the FF. Okay. One story across the top, one story across the bottom. 
Unfortunately, Burns' more classic superhero run and Iron Man failed to set the world on fire, and he was replaced with the very popular Len Kaminsky, who wrote a more technological era which brought it with it a lot of the familiar 90s trappings to the character, including the modular armour, the Hulkbuster armour, and War Machine, but Burns' run should not be overlooked. Marvel clearly recognised this as both Armour Wars 2 and Dragon Seed are available in collected editions. I've not read Alpha Flight, although I do want to recommend Volume 2 of the title, which was written by Steve Seagal during the Heroes Reborn period. This series was very notable for not really playing up the evil government agency angle with Department H, and was almost a mix of Alpha Flight and the X-Files. Not Burn-related, but good stuff. I'm assuming that's not Steven Seagal. Yeah, Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal. The mullet. No, not the actor in bad action movies, no. Okay. That's a different Steven Seagal. I think this was Steven... T. Seagal, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that's how he was credited. Thank you for the spotlights on John Byrne. I look forward to hearing more of this series of the week progress. Thanks, Luke. Oh, thank you very much, Luke. Always nice to hear from you. Our final email is from Kenneth Laster. Alan Morgan goes to the gas station bathroom. Hey, guys. Do we have a gas station in Birmingham? I don't know. Is he from Birmingham? Yeah, he's from Birmingham. Alright. I may have seemed very neutral on the Alan Moore subplot on Hey Kids Comics, but aside from Watchmen, Alan Moore can go to a bad place. I just read a bit of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen after the commentary by Scott and Mike on TTF, and I'm very upset by it. Because I like it. Do you? Why are all the really interesting characters in literature either a serial rapist or a bargle flogging antichrist? <laughs> I can somewhat get past the fact that James Bond in Moore's eyes is a rapist. Early get past if someone was drug me. But the fact that he did it because Sean Connery starred in an actual good movie that wasn't more approved. Sorry, Alan, I don't think the butchery of these classic characters will sit well with the general audiences. That was a very bad wordy thing to do to such a literary and cinematic icon in both Bond and Connery just because he had a job that you weren't happy with because every female wasn't raped in the past. <laughs> It's like someone walked up to him and said, hey, while you're at it, why don't you take a young adult literature icon who's been incredibly successful and spawned a fantastic universal fandom and make him the Antichrist. I don't care how deep and intricate he is, what made him want to turn Harry freaking Potter into the Antichrist? Did he? Well, no, but... I can't, I'm sure J.K. Rowling would have hauled him into the courts if he'd done that. There is a thing with Alan Moore where like, how to fit rape into all of his stories. Does he? But even though I do like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you do have the thing where th- these aren't the characters I've read in the novels. This isn't the Invisible Man. What? Yeah. Why? What? What is? What is the Invisible Man doing to her? He didn't use his powers for that. What are you doing, Alan? I've not read the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I've got him on the bookshelf. I've got both of them. The second one is very good because that's it? War of the Worlds. Oh, so I'll probably enjoy that. Then. Yes. A girl at my school is just infatuated with Moore because he's just so screwed up and she'd only read two of his books and whenever she brings up comics I have to tell her to shut up if she's going to talk about Alan Moore. I'd rather summarise issue two of any Bendis comics here about how Alan Moore craps on literature anymore. Don't see that people talk. She's a girl, dude. Talk to her. She's a girl that reads comics. I know what that's like. There's someone at my school like that. Well, there was. And you just thought, oh, and I'm like into this now. I'm like, no, shut up. Go away. She's like the doctor. I read comics now. Comics are cool. She's just like, oh, this game is so good. Oh, I love this game. It's the best shooter game ever. And it's not. What about Doom? Yeah, I don't know. It sounds boring. Does it have zombies in it? But, kind of did. But, but, what, what, no, it's Doom. What? Quake? Should I, should I finish Kenneth's email? Now you've had a rant about your schoolmates. Well, that was a very blind rant. It may not be cohesive, but I had to funnel it into an email or else a green monster would have rampaged through Georgia. And I really like these pants. Kenneth Laston, boy, wonder. <laughs> Thank you, Kenneth. 
And that's it for emails this week. Is there a green monster in Georgia? He's going to Hulk out. We've gone over our 40 minute again. Yes. Only by 5 minutes. I feel Michael Bailey could have stopped him. He would have lived in Georgia, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Mike yeah. could have brought out the Hulkbusters. He would. He would have turned into Superman. Yeah, that's a good idea. Anyway, uh, break. Break. And then we'll be right back with Birthday Boy's Choice. Yes. Holy nightmare. So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad, holy insert object gear jokes kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing, so I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. And we're back! Yes, we are. Ah, uh, well, you have the con. Okie dokie. We're now halfway through Spotlight on season. Our Spotlight on season? Yes. We're now halfway through <laughs> our season on Spotlights. <laughs> And this week falls on... Our season on Spotlight. The Spotlight's in Man United's ground are particularly lovely. Yes. <laughs> that signal's the best one. <laughs> I wasn't originally going to do tonight's topic until next time, but due to the events of this week, I decided to have it two weeks early as part of my birthday show. Hoorah! Yes. Tonight's episode of Hey Kids Comic Spotlight falls upon Grant Morrison. Oh, now... Our audience has just been split in half. Yes. <laughs> That's those uh, half who decided to stay on. Yeah, those those haven't switched off. Yes. <laughs> Bye, Scott. <laughs> Go on. See you next week. Although I'm a big fan of Morrison, I have no idea when I was first introduced to his work. I'd read R.I.P., Final Crisis, also Superman of 52, and even maybe other things before I even knew who Grant Morrison was. But my first introduction that I remember was his run on Animal Man. This seems to have a huge effect on me, as after this I searched every corner of our house for everything he wrote that we own. I immediately read Arkham Asylum, but ended up much preferring the artwork, even though that's pretty crap. His early issues of Batman and his Legends of the Dark Knight story, Gothic, which led to borrowing Kill Your Boyfriend and New X-Men story, Eve for Extinction, and receiving JLA and all three New X-Men trades and Seven Soldiers. I even went out on a hunt for all the single issues of Doom Patrol and the Filth, a series that I would cover in the show as an entire story. If I didn't have this co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I found you the Filth in the 50p bins. You did. And, and you were like, ooh. They are very good. I'm sure they are. Especially for the second time around you read it, because I read it first as a Morrison story, and then I actually read it as a guy who's, who's cat's dying and just is very upset, and it's like, wow. Sounds riveting. Well, no, because he, <laughs> he's like living on his own, he's cat's dying, he's lonely, so he makes an elaborate story 
situated on him. So not his cat. Everything centred around him, just so he feels like he's not alone. Okay. Fair enough. So the first time I read Animal Man, it genuinely blew me away. Not only did he make his own, Animal Man his own, but he did something I hadn't seen before. He wrote a comic as though everyone knew it was a comic, and did things to the earth, such as turning people into pencils and having the main comic, the main character interact with reader as well as the panels, as well as the writer even interacting with the character. He then had the JLA fighting things that JLA should be fighting things. They were against angels, Martians, Sun Eaters, and their future selves, rather than other people who could run fast and a bald businessman in a suit and bank robbers. He wrote the end of the world stories that included absolutely everyone. He wrote stories about big things and things that don't make any sense. And all of this appeals to me. I'm more interested in things that make no sense than regular superhero comics. I want my comics to be less like the A-Team and more like Twin Peaks. And Morrison gives me that. I like the 18. I've no problem with the 18. <laughs> I get what you say. Yes, you like the, you like stuff that's slightly more complicated and slightly non-linear. Yes, and may possibly be thought-provoking in that way that may actually not yeah. actually make any sense, the but first, seems to be deep. The first time I read The Invisibles, when I was like, right, I'm going to pay extra uh, extra extra careful care, attention yeah. to every panel, I'm gonna concentrate on every single panel, everything that's ever said until three issues, and I'm like, I just. I, I give up, I'm just gonna... Yeah, I'm just gonna go with the flow. Yeah. Ever since his early work on Neon Myths in 2000 AD, he's written comics, plays, books, poems, and music, as well as two upcoming movies. The first issue tonight is one of Morrison's early work, a series that arguably made his name and gave him the reputation he still has today, The Invisibles. The Invisibles was an important series for Morrison for both his work and himself. This series was what made his name, but also changed his <coughs> life. Coming out of an all-boys school and realising he's never spoken to his girl in his life, Morris wanted to get out there and was abducted by aliens <laughs> and told to the universe. Of course he was. He then wrote the series as a way of getting out into the world and telling the world what the secret of the universe is. And what the is aliens. the secret of the universe? I don't know. He said it would be issue 74 before we got to there in a letters column, but we didn't have a 74. Excellent! Yeah, that'd be a much bigger omnibus. After becoming a vegetarian from writing Animal Man, Morrison then dressed as a woman, because the character in The Invisibles also dressed as a woman, and also travelled around the world more. Everything he wrote about, he then did himself. However, he still claims to have never done drugs whilst writing it. He just watched the birds. But this series also had its negative effects. <laughs> you're making this up? Nope. Because if you're making this up, you're as wacky as he is. He said all this in interviews. Oh, God. But this series also had its negative effects on Morrison. Being tied to him by magic when his comic self, King Mob, lost his cheek, so did Morrison. When King Mob almost died, so did Morrison. Terrified, <laughs> Morrison then made King Mob get laid on ho- and go on holiday a lot. <laughs> So if I write a story in which the central character is an avatar of me, becomes a multi-billionaire playboy, and gets to live in Monte Carlo and drive Ferraris, do you think that'll happen in real life? Use hypersigils. Carry on. <laughs> you know, I've actually read up on how to make hypersigils work. It's not worked, but... <laughs> really? I'm shocked by that use. <laughs> The Invisibles issue one, Dead Beatles, was brought to you by Grant Morrison and Steve Yowl. Yowl. With Daniel Vozzo colouring, electric crayon, colour separations. <laughs> electric crayon. Letter of Clem Robbins and edited by Stuart Moore. Oh, the cover by Ryan Hughes is of a pink frag grenade against an orange background. 
Are they eyes in it? I've no idea. It's just a shadow. Is it? Mm. Right, because they look like eyes to me. If you ever just click on it. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, the cover sure is pink. Yeah. And, and it's a picture of a hand grenade. It's very Andy Warhol. Yes. So whether you think it's a good cover probably depends on what you think of Andy Warhol. Well, there was a lot of thing with it being whole arty and things. Mm. Like, as you'll see with the John Lennon bit inside. Yes, yes. I, I saw when I read the John Lennon bit inside. It's, yeah. it's alright, I suppose. Mm. It's kind of fresh. Doesn't really do anything. Nah. In Liverpool, a group of teenage boys threw a Molotov into the library window and set it on fire before running away. This is just an average night in Liverpool. In an apartment, they see the uh, words King Mob painting on an elevated doors. Apparently, they've been popping up all over the place. In Paris, a bald man named Gideon speaks to a 95-year-old woman who says that he hasn't aged a day since 1924. After the death of John of Dreams, Gideon's looking for a new recruit and wants the woman to do it. Back in Liverpool, Dane McGowan, who threw the Molotov, is daydreaming in class. After his teacher asks why does he slack off when he's capable of getting good grades, Dane just leaves. He goes home where his mum kicks him out so she can have a boyfriend over. And outside, as Dane has a cigarette, he sees the ghost of John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe talk about death before walking away. As they walk away, a demon appears behind Dane, but he just ignores it. Dane meets up with his friends and they hotwire a car and steal it. They drive to the school and plan to blow it up. As they start, they're caught by the teacher and they turn on him and beat him. At the court, the judge decides to send them to Harmony House, a new experimental juvenile detention centre. The head teacher shows Dane around, showing him the different approaches they take, including virtual reality. Later, the head kneels naked in front of a demon. During the night, Dane wakes up because of an alarm, and once he sees one of his friends zombified, he tries to escape. He finds a room filled with jars full of brain matter, and the head tells him that they lobotomize the children to take away their emotions. Before Dane can be captured again, King Mob shows up and kills all the guards and the head before escaping with Dane. King Mob takes Dane to London and asks him does he believe in ghosts. Dane takes a mick of this and when he jokes about them being invisible, he turns to see King Mob has left him alone in London. Um, right, okay, let's get the comic. Page one. I was just thinking that the monologue of Dippy Bollocks in panel two were, um, where is it? Some say that when we leave this planet, we will leave as insects. When our bodies are no longer needed, we will send out our spirits as a swarm of golden beetles, carrying the sun of pure understanding out of the abyss to our new home amongst the stars. I actually thought that was Dippy Bollocks. Yes. Um... But then Morrison actually has a character point out that it's Dippy Bollocks. Well, King Mob was like that. So that's fair play. King Mob was into his trippy stuff. He was so, like... Very cynical about it. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Um, do you not have any notes on this individually? I, I, I do have notes. But... Page two. Our central character, the aforementioned Dane McGowan. But I wonder if he's named after Shane McGowan. Because that's a very similar name, isn't it? Um, he's introduced wearing one of those big, stupid, puffy jackets that were inexplicably popular in the 90s and still are being worn by wannabe, vacuous, foul play, dappy. Baggy. Yeah, tracky pants, joggies, and large trailers with big tongues. I instantly dislike him. I presume I'm supposed to dislike him. Well, at first, yeah. So that's, that's fair enough. Um, he throws the Molotov cocktail into the library and it blows up. Because things blow up. I was going to say, how does, a, how does a Molotov cocktail blow up? Alive, how like does that. one reach the stars as an insect? 
moving on. Uh, if, if the owner's going to answer all my questions like you're channeling Grant Morrison, this is going to be a very short show. Page five, his mate has an incredible bump fluff tash. Doesn't he? Which I thought was quite funny. Kids thinking they're grown up. Oh dear. Page six. On my notes though. So is this King Mob? Yep, it's... Well, sort of. But you said his name was Gideon. You will get into that later, I've already got uh, a right, that. Okay. Um, he's the prototypical Grant Morrison character who talks sort of bollocks, but does it so eloquently that he sounds convincing, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Does he use a lot of double talk and put a lot of scientific terms together that sound really clever? Is he a believer in expanded consciousness? Um, he's a Grant Morrison character. No one yes in that order. Uh, yeah. Am I going to dislike him? Well, no, later on in this series, he's all like... Yes, he does believe in expanding consciousness and stuff, but he's all like, this is a bit messed up, this is all... But he puts lots of double-talk scientific words together to make up stuff. Yes, yeah. King Mob is um, Grant Morrison writing himself into the comic. I was shocked by that news. But later on there's a story arc that does some really wacky triple-cross snizzle, right? What? It's revealed that Grant Morrison is King Mob. Okay. And King Mob is Gideon Stargrave, mm-hmm. who is one of Morrison's earliest creations and published work. But not only that, but Gideon Stargrave is a fictional character created by a fictional writer, which is um, an analogue of Grant Morrison. Sorry, I'm lost. So Carry on. Grant Morrison's analogue is a fictional writer who writes a fictional character which Grant Morrison also wrote, and that fictional character... So King Mob writes about King... Gideon Stargrave? No, King Mob is Gideon Stargrave. That's why he's called Gideon. Right. But the two different people who are one person... Now, Grant Morrison is one person, and the other person is a fictional character created by an analogue of Grant Morrison. <laughs> It makes sense if I draw it on a chart. Uh, carry on. And um, King Mob was also the name of a group that planned on bringing worldwide proletarian social revolution <laughs> and was situated in 1970s London. Their aim was to emphasise the cultural anarchy and disorder that was being ignored in Britain. I don't mind that bit. Well, yes. uh, his history with the old woman and Jack of Dreams' death uh, later story out. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, page nine. I know we're supposed to feel a bit sorry for Dane because his mum's a wastrel and a bit of a tart. Mm-hmm. Well, he leaves her in like the next issue. Oh, does he, Ryan? Do we never see her again? We do. Oh, but okay. only so we can yell at her for things. Right. Um, I have started to lose patience with blaming parents for bad behaviour. At what point does personal responsibility come back into fashion? Well. Um, because Dane's quite a bright kid. Yes. And could actually accomplish something. Which I presume the Invisibles take bring that out of. of him. Yeah. Or take advantage of him. Whatever. Uh, page 10 is Stuart Sutcliffe and John Lennon. Yes. Have you ever seen the film Backbeat? I have not. That's about Stuart Sutcliffe. Okay. And his ultimate early death so, of uh, a brain hemorrhage, I think. So was he an important Beatles member? He was He was the fifth Beatle. Because well, no one knows, really. I say no one knows, but when you say the Beatles, the first course. thing that pops into most people's heads is... He left before they became famous. John, Paul, George and Ringo. I think... I could be wrong here. Somebody who knows Beatles chronology off the top of their head better than me. I think he left before Ringo joined the band. Right. 
he was with them while they were in Hamburg and he met this girl called Astrid and ended up staying there with her to be an artist okay. and then died of a brain hemorrhage at 22 years of age I think yeah. so so did he leave because he felt like Jimi Hendrix in the dolls he wasn't a particularly yeah he wasn't a particularly good guitar player Fair. I, I was joking about that with the guy in Sandman saying he felt like Jimi Hendrix in the Beatles mm, in the wrong band yeah. he wasn't a particularly good guitar player he was there because he was John's mate Fair enough. And he want he didn't particularly want to be in a band. He wanted to do other things. Fair enough. So, um, well, around the time of writing this, Morrison summoned the ghost of John Lennon. I'm sure he did by a ritual that is usually used to summon a god or a demon. Which one's Lennon? Well, depends on how you look at it. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> uh, Lennon allegedly taught Morrison a song that he performed to an audience for the very first time in a panel with Gerard Way last year, which. <laughs> I don't believe for a second. Yeah, I'm very much open-minded in sleeping that whatever Grant Morrison says could very possibly be true. But, but that- could very possibly be utter cat. <laughs> right. It's a fine line between the two. In, in a world where your government... In a world. Yeah. As we found out yesterday with the Hillsborough Inquirer. no money. And yeah. the the people, it's just all sucky, and you're losing your money, and your job sucks, and all that. Would it not be great to actually just believe everything Grant Morrison says? Would it not be great to have John Lennon appear to you <laughs> well, yeah. to help you out? But in the, give peas a chance. That song, it's like he refers to himself as John Lennon. So if I'm believing that John Lennon wrote this song, why is he referencing to himself as John Lennon by name in his own song? I wouldn't like to to hazard a guess. To be honest with you, and I did all I did ceremonial magic because I thought I'll test these techniques. I've seen that they can conjure things that look like images of demons or gods. What if I do someone that I know for sure is not a god? It's just something I made up. So I, I surrounded myself with Beatles albums, like a magic circle. <laughs> I wore my paisley shirt and I had my like Beatles boots on and the wrecking racket guitar, <laughs> and I played "Tomorrow Never Knows" on a loop. And I conjured John Lennon the way that you would conjure a medieval demon or god. And basically what I did was take everything out of the room that wasn't Lennon. And suddenly this visualisation of a gigantic chiming head of John Lennon, as it appears in the first Invisibles book, was right there in my room. Everything in the room contributed to the idea of Lennon himself was present. And he gave me this song and I played it to him the other night. So. <laughs> Yeah. So I thought, wouldn't it be the most ridiculous thing to end on this song? Yeah. <laughs> and so, honestly, if I f*** up, just please be nice to me. Yeah. <laughs> so and and my voice is not what it was when I was 21, but I'm going to do this because this was John Lennon shit. As it happened, recorded. My band did a version of it, but this is the actual song that I got that night, and it's, it's kind of funny. <clears throat> Look, Gerard Way's getting my guitar. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it just says John Lennon on it, so let's, let's try and will the great man's spirit to us tonight. Keep taking the pills, keep reading the books, keep looking for signs that somebody loves you. Walk in the dark 
Keep taking the drugs Keep looking for signs That somebody loves you One and one and one makes two If you really want it to Talking about love I'm talking about love Watching the skies, just a word to the wise. When will you realize that somebody loves you? Somebody loves you. One and one and one makes two. If you really want it to, talking about love. I'm talking about love All I want it to be All I want it to be, yeah Was a beat to like you John Lennon like you John Lennon like, John Lennon like, John Lennon like, John Lennon like you John Lennon like you Oh, John Lennon like you straightforward story so far until we get until to we get to page 18 yeah which is psychedelic um there's copies of the Beatles albums Revolver and Rubber Soul on the floor um No Abbey Road which is my favourite Beatles album I prefer Sgt Pepper not druggy enough presumably no, for, for this sequence um there's lots of references to, to Beatles lyrics in these couple of pages. Morrison would just be happy if the Beatles just made an entire record. That was them playing sitars. Have you ever listened to Revolution Number 9? No. That's Grant Morrison. Them playing sitars. <laughs> I'm going to let Ringo <laughs> play a couple <laughs> of tunes. <laughs> uh, number 9 is mentioned quite a lot. Obviously a reference to the Beatles song Revolution Number 9, which is oh. on the self-titled double album, commonly referred to as the White Album. One of the most experimental and odd tracks the Beatles ever recorded. More popular than Jesus is a reference to Lennon's controversial comment that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, oddly enough. Oddly, this was only controversial with the US media, and many months after the interview was given, the UK media got that he was joking, and kind of left it alone. The US media probably got that he was joking as well, but smelled a chance to fabricate controversy out of it. There are more references to Beatles lyrics here as well, let me take you down, Eggman and the Apple logo. Uh, I do like the 60s psychedelic nature of the art on these pages, but the writing, probably intentional. Sounds like a battery right of I am the walrus. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Cuckoo, and indeed cuckoo. Should we give you a sample in our dramatic reading style? No, oh, oh, you're going to do this again. Uh, do, you know, do you not want me to? Oh, no, go on. No, oh, it's, it's, I can't that read page. that. I can't read that. Do you want to read it? Well, if you zoom in. Do you not want to start on the first page? If you want to. I'm not going to do it all. Really? 
I was just going to do that. That's that. Enter the Lennonhead soundscape, digital clatter of evolving player wheels, mantra sonics, mantra and mantra walls, made of mantra halls, made of mantra and skin and her of mantra. Magical mystery maze of floral circuitry. Looking glass language reverb red in the red room of the head. Revolving head, revolving neon gun blast of numbers and noise. I am the Eggman. Fizzing sherbet storms of light particles. Bumper tilt, Eggman, hologram, blizzard. The head of the oracle head speaks in rhyming sounds. Hammer chime, fuzz tone, piano. Let me take you down, down. Lenny, Bruce, Lester, Banks, Bertie, Party, Cheesecake, Jelly, Boom, Boom, New, Vitriolic, Symbiotic, Slam, Buck, Neck, Yeah, Feeling, Pretty Psyched. Alright. That's not in it. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> um, it's only silly when you read it out loud. It's silly, but it was silly when I was reading it in my head. <laughs> um, page 20, the teacher looks like actor Peter Wingard. Which would make him another comics character patterned after the Jason King actor. He was also the Hellfire Club by Clermont and Byrne. Okay. Um, page 26 mm-hmm. is the first appearance of another invisible Ragged Robin, even though she's not named. Is she not? No. Okay. Uh, Dane spends the next couple of issues after this being taught about the invisibles and their aims and what they're about before calling the newest recruit Jack Frost. And it is hinted at several times that he is not only the chosen one, but is also the next Buddha. Uh, of course, he's the chosen one, aren't yes. they all? Uh, the last couple of pages are quite chilling, where he gets sent off to the... Um, That's probably the best part of the issue. Yeah, where he gets sent off to the anti-conformity yes. place, with the really icky headmaster, mm. who has a smoothness in between his legs. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I got what he was going for here. He's writing about a disaffected youth who's nothing to live for, so he's no reason whatsoever to care about anything. He's in a dead-end town with a dead-end family with nothing to look forward to in life. The only person who gives him the time of day is his teacher, who beats the crap out of him. I get all of this, and it's not in any way badly written. But we have the popular youthful rebellion plot and disregard of authority. And again, I am nowhere unsympathetic to that plight. And there are many figures of authority and power, as we record this show, that I would gladly lead a rebellion against. But then we have the tedious anti-conformity section. And again, Morris is hitting loads of story beats that I'm a fan of this one included. I like anti-conformity. Anyone that reads comics has a bit of a rebellion streak. I like people with weird dress sense and unusual hobbies. But here's the thing, Dane isn't anti-conformity. He's the very definition of conformity. He doesn't learn at school because that's stupid and his friends tell him so. He acts out because of his broken home life. It's also very cliche now because it's conformity. You know what isn't conformity anymore? Reading, being informed, knowing stuff. It's conformity now to be stupid. Yes, but at the time, was it not any different? Because um, you said this was your... Fi- what, when your I read yeah. I read this as a teen. When did this first come out? Um, 90-something. Was this before you? Yeah. I read it back then when I was in my early 20s, and it had more of an impact on me than it did now. Yeah. So, I, yes. How old was Grant Morris when he wrote this? I don't know. 20s. The 20, late 20s? Uh, well, it can't be late 20s, because... Is he the same age as me? Or is he a bit older he than might me? might be a little bit older. Um, I don't know. See, I thought that his teacher was actually the one who was anti-conformity. 
because his teacher is telling him to work within the system to make himself better to be able to get out of the system yeah I mean I presume as the book goes along these themes are going to be explored more and better well or it'll be more consciousness expanding drivel and nonsense I like that in the text piece at the end of the issue he does say that he writes gibberish yeah well um, I didn't know Doom Patrol was critically panned did you not no it's not an issue but later on the, you said that um there's a whole um, talking about conformity and all that. Mm. So you're saying that, but the actual next story arc after the whole Dane stuff is actually about Sodom. Oh. You know the Marquis de Sade? Yes. You go back in time to get him where it turns out that his unfinished novel, The 120 Days of Sodom, is actually real. But, uh. but I also have a problem with issue one of the Invisibles. Do you? Yes. Because the Invisibles is also a team book. The Invisibles are a team. But this falls under the same thing that the recent Justice League did. Mm. You're not told who all the members are. Well, you're only really introduced to one of them in the first issue. Yeah. Well, I presume Dane becomes one of them. Yeah. Does he end up being in part of it? How does it end? I've not We're read the spoil Invisibles. I've not read it yet, because I read them all digitally mm. when Scott gave them those. Yeah. But when I heard that there was Omnibus out, I stopped. So you're going to read it when I get you the Omnibus? So a year and a half later, the Omnibus actually came out. <laughs> but you've not got it yet, because it's not your birthday yet. Yes. Okay. So I don't know how it ends. The first story arc ends with them being captured by the demon, the, the guy that Hermony House was worshipping. And there's the whole... Grant Morrison, Gideon Stargrave stuff, and then they kill the demon and such. And then the very last issue is about um, John and Jack of Dreams. And it's like, See, I find your explanations of this much better than I probably find the actual stories. Yeah. It's just not for me, is it? No. No. I'll still buy it for you, though. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and well, that's the, we're not off to an auspicious start, though. Unlike with Frank Quitley. Yes. Who you managed to convince me was actually worthy. Yes. Worthy? Oh, with Grant Morrison. I, I, I knew there was no... There was no, <laughs> There's no way in hell! I just gave up. <laughs> I just figured I like this. It's a good example of Grant Morrison's writing. Fair enough. No, okay. What What's next? Next is also Super Nishu Sit. Ah, right. The classic. Which I chose for... It's like two reasons. What were your two reasons? Um, one of my reasons was that I very much like this issue. Yeah, I very much like All Star Superman for the most part. I do, but this is a highlight of the series yes. for me yeah. because it's like a little personal story. Yeah. In the middle of a big upscale. Is this really going on, Grant? Yeah. So, well, but um, by and large, this was a series of one and two issue stories with an overarching story thread, wasn't it? Yeah. Because of the whole 12 feet yeah. he has to accomplish. But we didn't actually see him do all 12 feet, did we? In fact, we only knew that the word, what all the 12 feet were, in an interview with Grant Morrison. Oh, right, okay. Because yeah. this is, you, you've got Google, go and search it, lazy writing bit. Uh, no, this was his, the only way to understand this story is to read all the interviews with me. <sighs> there are still unpublished interviews for Final Crisis, however, so I still win. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, another reason I also chose it was because... Dem- here comes the hate mail but to me this is what I think Superman should be like no that's fair enough there's an awful lot of people that agree with you yes but I I think Grant Morrison's um, characterisation of Superman is very much what I think Superman should be yeah I don't disagree not his action comics Um, I don't disagree with you he does get Silver Age Superman 
And he does. He is able to handle those wacky Silver Age concepts yes. and modernise them and do a good well, job with them. Because I, Silver Age concepts are essentially early Grant Morrison stories. Essentially, yeah. And I did like the key to the Fortress of Solitude, yeah. which isn't in this issue. It was another issue, but I actually did think that was really or it's cool. It's a normal key. It's a normal key, on Earth. but it's it's got the density of a white dwarf star or <laughs> yeah. something like that, isn't it? I don't exactly remember what he said. I actually thought that was pretty cool, mm. and I did like. Most of All-Star Superman, for the most part. Um, the cover is the one with Superman and Crypto stood in front of Jonathan's grave at night. Mm-hmm. It's it's a kind of a mixture of what I like and don't like. I love the colouring and the moon hanging low over the graveyard. I enjoy the depiction of the wind with the blades of grass and Superman and Crypto's cape all flowing in the breeze. Quitley can definitely draw. We discovered this last week. The dog in particular looks very good, as does the figure work. I just don't like what he's drawn. I'm not really a fan of Quitley's Superman. Mm-hmm. It's okay, but the pants are too baggy, aren't they? His trunks are far too baggy. And the cape's not long enough. Well, at the same time, I like the baggy pants. The, uh, why? Because, well, a lot of people say, oh, he's wearing underwear on top of underwear. So you either take two things, you either do two things, like you either get rid of his... Which trunks, looks crap. Or you make it look like it's something he would wear. They look more like shorts yeah. than they look like trunks. I don't... I don't know, I'm just not... I just, I just... It's just the way it's depicted, I don't like them. They do look like the baggy shorts that he's put on over his pants. Yeah. Whereas, for all the criticisms of him, he's underpants over his trousers, they don't actually look like that. Or they shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, I am going to go out on a limb and say that this book looks as good as it does, largely due to the efforts of colourist Jamie Grant, who digitally inked and coloured this. The colouring throughout this entire issue is fantastic. Hmm. Which does make me wonder, what's the showcase going to look like in 20 years? Because I think the colouring is carrying an awful lot of this. Yeah. Well, um... Have you seen any of Quitley's commissions of Superman? No, I haven't. They're not... Good? No, they're, they're perfectly good. <laughs> perfectly adequate. Frank Quitley drawings of Superman, it's just... Yeah, the perfectly good Frank Quitley drawings of yeah, Superman, but because, they're not good Superman. Yeah, because <laughs> it, it's very light and you can only see anything. In right. Film. Okay. Fair enough. I've not seen any of his commissions, but I do think the coloring's doing the lion's share of the work here. Oh, it is. Was Jamie Grant doing all the artwork? <laughs> we'll see what he did though. I very did. good. Only a little though. And Frank Quitley on pencils, kind of, sort of. Phil Balsman lettered and Brandon Monkler and Bob Shrek edited Funeral in Smallville. Hmm. This starts many years ago as a young Clark Kent and a still living Jonathan Kent stand in the field watching the sunset. Jonathan tells Clark of how he and Martha could have children and were blessed with a miracle boy from another world. A falling star swerves down and crashes into the field. Out of it comes Crypto and Clark runs off and throws a tree into the sky. Crypto flies after it, and Clark follows. When Jonathan gets back to the house and meets up with Martha, three strange men arrive to help with the harvest. After playing, Clark and Crypto sit on the moon and watch the Earth. The following morning, Clark asks Martha who the three men are. She says they seem strange, but are very well-mannered, and the three walk into the room with Jonathan. 
Calvin Elders, who finds a young Clark Kent incredible, a small man with a funny hair and a purple hat, and a man with his face covered in bandages. So Mr. Mitchell's better like in The Unknown Soldier, then? Yes. Clark talks about the mental line of Lang and Pete Ross in, in a diner. And this is two says he's just crazy. As they take a photo, an old man leaves the diner, and Clark hears cries in the distance about the cans of Superman leaving with an old man. Clark excuses himself and finds the action. He sits, costumed on a water silo with Crypto, and watches the three men inspect the dead old man who left the diner. The bandaged man hears a distinctive heartbeat in the distance, and as he says that, a costumed Calvin Elders appears hovering behind Clark. Calvin reveals himself to be Cal Kent, the Superman of AD 853,500? Something like that. And a member of the Superman squad. Arriving to meet Clark is the unknown Superman of AD 4,500, and Klizik Clint the Superman of the Fifth Dimension, who are pursuing the Cronivore monster across ten centuries. Cal says they found him in this century from finding the photo Lana took a mere few a mere minutes ago in the Fortress of Solitude. They spot the Cronivore and chase after it, and Clark goes too, but Cal tries to stop him. Well, the two end up fighting, and Crypto ambushes him, so Clark rushes off the Cronivore. As they fight, the bandaged man walks up to Jonathan, who asks if he'll be okay, the boy, and the man says it all comes out right in the end. Clark grabs the Cronivore, and a watching Cal says that facing the Cronivore will eat a precious three minutes of your life. And in those three minutes, Jonathan Kent suffered a fatal heart attack. The unknown Superman arrives back on the scene and Clark panics as he can no longer hear his pal's heartbeat. He flies as fast as he can, even setting on fire. But it's too late. Clark speeds to the funeral, and that night he sets off to leave back Metropolis. Watching from afar is the three Supermen. Klisnaplux <laughs> tells Cal that the lightning door is open and they should leave soon. The unknown Superman takes his bandages off to reveal himself as Superman and thanks the squad for the opportunity to seize Perth one last time. The lightning door opens and out comes a golden superman and two other supermen. The golden soups give Superman a golden indestructible flower from the new Krypton for Jonathan in remembrance for all that they are and all that they will be. That night, Clark Kent places the flower at Jonathan's grave and sits. Oh. Yeah, it was a good one, this. Yes. Better than the Invisibles. Yeah, well... <laughs> Um, I absolutely adored the first couple of pages of this where Clark is embarrassed by his pa talking to him and rubbing his hair like that. Like what I used to all the time. I, I, I didn't like that really. Did you not? Because of, even though I like the Superman... I embarrass I've, you all the time. Well, not when there's no one there to be embarrassed in front of. Yeah, you, 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 you cutie. I don't really care about that. It's like, <laughs> Who's here but me and you? And the, the, the 18 people that listen to the show. And you just heard you go new. You, you, you did. At, at the same time, even though I like the Superman, I don't particularly like the Clark Kent. I, I've read loads of stories where Clark Kent is very much into what Jonathan's doing there. Mm, see, I don't mind that, to be honest with you. I don't mind that he's, he's, he's not embarrassed in a bad way. No. And... I'm presuming this Clark's only about 18 or 19 if he's just about to leave to go to Metropolis. He's already been to Metropolis. So, so, he's still only a teenager at this point in the story, though, isn't he? The death of Jonathan Kent? Yeah. So he's not very old. So I'll, I'll give him a pass for that. I did like that the, the stick he throws for Crypto is a tree stump. Yeah. And not just a twig. Yeah. <laughs> that was hysterical. Uh, page four. 
is very lazy, Mr. Quitler. You can't draw the outline of America? Really? You need a photo? Was was the outline of America? Oh, right. Well, so do you think he only drew the tree trunk, though? I'm assuming And that's though. just a photo of North America? Yeah. Right, okay. The, the amount of times you look at pencils I'm, and it's just... I was looking at this wondering, where does Quitley end and Jamie Grant begin? Yeah. Because as I said at the top of the coverage of this, the colouring carries an awful lot of this. Yeah, it's just line work, really. It's not bad line work, no. to be fair. But I do wonder how much of the depth of the artwork in this has been given by the colouring. All of it, I'm assuming. You think? Mostly. Um, I loathe that the credits are like a movie. Because comics aren't movies, I hate that. Even I with hate... a little rating. Yeah, it's got a rating for general audiences, and I hate this. Comics, I hate this season one and director's cut cack that's permeated comics over the last few years. It's like comics aren't good enough, so we have to be producing mini-movies. It's bollocks. They're competing with movies, though. They're comics, you ass! I don't think they are competing. By doing stuff like that, they're deliberately drawing comparisons. They should be actually going out of their way to prove why comics are unique. Yes. In my opinion, but what do I know? I don't run a major comic book company. Which is probably fortunate, because there probably wouldn't be any sales. Um, Again, the pages that you mentioned earlier on, there's a silent page of Superman and Crypto frolicking in space, which is lovely to look at, largely again because of the colouring. Uh, and the shot of them sitting on the moon, just a man and his pet dog, yeah. is lovely. Would have been nice if we'd seen the American flag up there that Neil Armstrong had left there. Mm. That would have been quite cool. You do know, though, that Frank Quitley's uh, artwork on it only extends to the outline. I was going to say, is that a picture of the Earth again? That is a picture of the Earth, yeah. But um, it doesn't further the plot in any way. No. But it is nice seeing them frolicking around in asteroid fields. and It's a lovely page. Yeah. It's completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, a lovely page. Um, I think it's the little scenes where Quitley shines in this boot. The facial expressions are all different. And there are shots in the boot that are undeniably lovely. The image of the Kent farm with the sun. Is the sun rising though? Yeah, because it's the morning, isn't it? But again, yeah. how much of that is the colouring? Mm-hmm. Uh, the next page, the coffee shop scene with Clark, Pete Ross and Lana is beautifully rendered. I love that Clark is bigger than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Why does Lana have brown hair? I don't know. She's not a redhead in the comics. I thought she was, but apparently... Has that not been changed since Kristen Crook played her in Smallville? Definitely. So idea. now she's a brunette. She's a very pretty brunette, although she's got one of Quickly's squashed faces. Mm. Um, I did like that both Pete and Lana know that Clark is Superman. But the act's like... But they pretend that they don't, because Clark obviously doesn't want them to know. In the comics, post-pre-crisis, Pete Ross always knew that he was Superboy. Okay. And in the post-crisis, Lana Lang knew that he was Superman. Right. So this seems like a a melding of the two. Fair enough. Um, The Kansas Superman, which is mentioned, is Superboy, Mm. before he went to Metropolis. And was confirmed as Superman. Yeah, and he was mentioned in this month's action comics. He was, but in the recent action comics, the Kansas Superman was completely different. So this doesn't fit into the Morrison superverse. Oh, but it does. I'm sure you're going to explain that to me later on. Uh, yes. In the same way that all these Bat titles fit in the Batverse yes. that Morrison has created. There is the Batverse and the... There is the Superverse. Superverse. Um, 
Well, but the, the Superverse and the Batverse actually fit into the same verse as the DC Universe. Do they? They can all Even yes. now? I will. i, I got a note. Though, all right, so okay, I will, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing one of your long, convoluted, continuity Well, it's not, but I can make a lot of them up. Um, wasn't the Superman squad in Grounded? Yes. And I'm, I'm presuming you're now going to tell us that this is part of Morrison's super epic with the Superman of the future and... and other dimensions when you were reading Grounded did you not think the Superman squad seemed very much like a Morrison concept yes but then that's because you told me that they were yes and I liked the Superman squad yeah in Grounded didn't I one of the few things we liked about Grounded well no Grounded was very good once Straczynski left right I wouldn't say it was very good I would say Chris Robeson did the best that he could be expected to do with the material when you come out a new Krypton and Grounded suddenly that is very good yeah compared to new Krypton Grounded was better yeah. Um, right, so Cal Kent is not the Superman from One Million. Right. Okay. Yes, the costume looks similar. It looks exactly the same, doesn't it? No. What's different about it? Um, well, you see how it's like really long, oval, medium oval, yeah. small oval. What it is, it's s- on his chest. Emblem. Yeah. It's small oval, big oval, small oval. So it's slightly different. Slightly different, but uh, okay, because on. I'm familiar with Morrison's want for all of his stories to fit, yeah, even going out of his way to get um, an issue of Invisibles completely redrawn just so it's more faithful to the script, then I... Did he do that? Oh, yeah. Okay. For, for the collected edition, he got someone else to redraw that issue. So there's an issue of the Invisibles in separate individual issues form Which that is, is completely different art yes. from the one in the collective Because editions. the artist who drew the single issue wasn't faithful faith, faithful to the script. Morrison then, for the collective edition, got someone else to do it. And did he pay him? Definitely. I'm assuming so, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I'm assuming because of this that it's This not isn't him. that guy. Yes. Um, I love the name Chronovore, which sounds like a Doctor Who bad guy. Mm. Chrono comes from Greek... Yeah. Meaning time and vor from the Latin, meaning to devour. And I like that he'd mixed up Greek and Latin, because we've said before on the show, everything either comes from Gleek, Gleek, Greek. which is like um, Glee, yeah. but I don't watch that. Um, everything comes from Greek or Latin. You watched two of them. <laughs> it it wasn't, wasn't for me, yeah. was it? No. 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 Um, so I like the name Chronovore. Yeah. It does sound like a John Pertwee bad guy. I liked that. Um, the shot of Superman and the Superman of the future are pretty damn good. Although future Superman sounds like he's auditioning to be the new Bionic Man, doesn't he? You can't stop me, says our Superman. Don't be insane. I'm faster. Stronger. Better than I was before. We have the capability to build the world's first Superman. <laughs> it's an excellent... John Williams doing the score. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Um... It's an excellent shot of them both flying. I'll give quickly that. They really do look like yeah. they're suspended in air. And I really love how the cape is fluttering in the breeze, even though it's still not long enough. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to let that go. Okay, so Golden Superman Yes, is what makes his fist into one million. Who, which one's the Golden Superman? The one that's completely golden. The one that's completely golden? Yes, okay. For the t- not yeah. the one with his, his face bandage. I might have misplaced my notes. Actually. All right, okay, fair enough. Should I leave this? Oh, right, the one on the last page. Yes. Right. Okay. Should I leave this until the last page? No, 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 you can can go ahead. So anyway, he says a line of dialogue where um, Superman says, which of my descendants are you? And the golden Superman just says, ha. Right. Okay, so what it is. What it is. At the end of All-Star Superman. Yes. Okay. 
uh, Superman dies and becomes one with the sun. Right. Becoming some kind of godson. Yes. And he comes back and he out of the sun in one million? from it in the very last issue of one million. Right. Yeah, I remember So, that. how this all fits in, okay, so you have JLA... Yes. ...happening, is the regular DC universe. Mm-hmm. And then one million happens... Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the DC universe happens. Mm-hmm. Up until the end of Superman's career, or life, which is also a Superman, mm-hmm. which then sets up One Million, mm-hmm. and then One Million happens at the same time the previous issues of the JLA happened. Right. So it's some kind of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Yes. So right. at the same time, this also fits into the regular DC universe with the JLA series. Okay. Which then also fits Batman into it. Excellent. So you can have them as three separate entities or one big entity. Fair enough. I like that he put some thought into it. Mm. Um, nice reference to the general store. Because in the Bronze Age, Jonathan and Martha ran a store in Smallville rather than far. Um, and I really like the ending. Yeah. Because it really does play with the, all the things I can do, all these powers, and I couldn't even save him. Which to me is the key line from Superman the movie. Yeah. clearly laying out Superman's limitations in one succinct line of dialogue here his fight with the Cronivore cost him three minutes three minutes to end Jonathan Kent's life and I always felt the loss of Jonathan was a huge body blow to Superman arguably bigger than the loss of Krypton as you can't lose something you never really had he yeah. never lived on Krypton he didn't know what it was like to live there he never knew his real parents mm-hmm. and although he can mourn them and honour them he didn't actually know them yeah. So I always felt. So you didn't feel the full impact. Yeah, I always felt the death of Jonathan Kent would have had a much bigger impact on him, and the key to him learning that there is just some things you don't mess with yeah. was the death of Jonathan Kent more than the death of Krypton, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Well, it's an also, an also ground. So yeah, know, right? it, it shows that there there are limitations. There are, he can't do everything. There, there were people who read this and like got all choked up because the dad died and stuff and mm. this is very much you know not even I couldn't do that and stuff but I even though I find it's a very like sweet story and all that and stuff I, it still doesn't have its full impact because well you're still here thanks love so, yeah. <laughs> so this story only means something to you when I'm dead well, no, it's, excellent no I'm, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying you'll read this when you're older and I'm gone is what you're saying and I'll think why did I say that on the show yes. why but you're editing this one so you can cut it out if you want. I, I, I wasn't meaning that. <laughs> I know what you meant. It's very sweet. Um, as much as I like the From Crisis to Crisis era Superman, I didn't like Burn. That Burn Superman had never failed and had never lost somebody. So Burn Superman was Morrison Batman. <laughs> yeah, he'd, he'd never gone through that. Because Burn Superman, it was Jonathan and Martha that kept him grounded and had raised him. Mm-hmm. And so his Krypton heritage was there, but it was just kind of, I'm human. Right. But he'd never lost Jonathan or Martha. Therefore, I mean, I understand why he did it, but there was an emotional story beat there of him losing his mum or his dad that I would have liked to have seen them handled. To be honest, in, from, in the post-crisis here, I would have preferred them to kill off Martha. Well, like and keep that, Jonathan like, alive. Yeah, like in Tim Dehaven's It's Superman, yeah. which I thought did a really good job with that. I think post-crisis that would have been a much more interesting dynamic to kill his mum rather than his dad. Yeah. But they kept both of them around. So uh, I loved that Superman flies so fast he starts burning. Yeah. 
I thought that was brilliant. And not going back in time. Well, and not going back in time, no. Yeah. Um, Jonathan's eulogy is actually beautifully written hmm. by Morrison. It's straightforward and honest and from the heart. And while this is full of Morrisonisms, e.g., I forgot that the 5D vision only entered our bloodline in the 67th century when Superman Purple married Quinto Queen Gnitzpickel of Zerf. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Um, he really does nail the emotion here. And this is another one of those you can hear da, 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 swelling in the background. Yeah, yeah. The whole Jonathan Kent theme. Mm-hmm. No, that's Braves of the Lost Ark. But you know what I mean. <laughs> the Jonathan Kent. Raiders of the Jonathan Kent. Raiders of the Jonathan Kent. And it's going to bug me if that doesn't come to my head now. That bit. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um, I don't know how you're going to edit that so that it makes sense. Um, and again, he nails it at the end. The revelation that the bandaged Superman was our Superman. And this was just his chance to say goodbye, even though he's wearing a question mark, which I thought was quite a nice touch. Yeah. He's wearing a question mark in his ass. Um, it's very touching and emotional from a writer that I think is very cold and off-putting. Hmm. You don't agree with that. Well, but. well, this was his time of... It wasn't his dark, depressing time, which was... Has he recovered? Yeah. He, his dark, depressing time was New X-Men and the filth, right. in which his dad died, his cat died, he made everyone else feel his pain. Uh, so through his art. This, this was very much the... You know, I've faced something that Superman has gone through. So, so he was able to write from experience. Yes. Yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, I've said before, my favourite Morrison work is Kill Your Boyfriend, to the point where I don't actually want to read that again Did because in what? my head, just in case another. I read happens. that. I didn't know who Grant Morrison was when I read that. He yeah. was just it was just another Vertigo one shot that we picked up, and I read it and thought, wow, that was really good. Mm. But this is. His all-star Superman run is one of his best handlings of the character of Superman. Yes. And whilst it came off the rails a bit here and there, personally I think he said everything he wanted to say about Superman in these 12 issues. Which is possibly why Action Comics has been a bit disappointing. Hmm. Because he said everything he wanted to say about the character. Yeah. Do you know what I think? Well, yeah. I mean, his Action Comics, that's not really his Superman, is it? No. It's the super god thing. He's coming out of it writing someone else's Superman. Yeah, whereas this is his interpretation of Superman. Yeah. And he does a, he does a good job with it. Mm. Fair well, play to it him. It was a cosplay's interpretation of Superman. Well, there is that. It was much better than the X-Men issue you gave me to read by the same creative team. Well, there are some better issues. Yeah, um, adverts in this one. We didn't have adverts in the Invisibles because it was a digital copy. Um, Frank Miller and David Mazzuccelli's Batman Year One hardcover is out, which David Mazzuccelli has disowned. No, that was the deluxe edition. The is that one. not this? No. Is this? Has there been another version since this? Yeah. Does, oh. You know the deluxe editions? Yeah. The thicker Marvel-sized hardbacks. Yeah. It's that With one. The glossy paper. Completely recolored. And Mazzuccelli said it looks crap, doesn't it? Yeah. Magic the Gathering cards. Yay. <laughs> Uh, Batman, Superman versus Aliens and Predator. I have not read that, and now I want to. Really? Yeah, I loved Aliens versus Predator, 
And I love really? Batman versus Alien, Batman versus Predator, and I liked Superman versus Aliens. You liked Aliens versus Predator. I love the first Aliens versus Predator comics. Yeah. Oh right, the comics. Oh no, the films were tosh. Right, you but the comics. Yourself, the first, the first Aliens Predator series was brilliant. Right, okay. I remember it being brilliant. Anyway, I what? would have to reread it again to, to see what I'll I think of it. Don't reread it again. Oh, don't reread it again, so it doesn't tarnish my uh, my memory. So I want to read that now. Um, Detective Chimp. As drawn by Brian Bolland, mm. is um, it was that from a spin-off of New Fifty Two, not wow. New Fifty Two, just Fifty Two. Yeah, a little magic event. Shazam versus the Monster Society of Evil, which I've never read. Destroy All Humans Two, and an advert for the Mark Wade George Perez Brave and the Bold, mm-hmm. which wasn't Mark Wade's finest hour. No. I don't think, although the artwork was pretty. Tied into Sandman, that was. There was it. Yeah. All right, Fifty Two action figures. A whole Fifty Two of them. Not. 52 action, fi- action figures based on the comic series. It's funny series. how they're selling two action 50, figures of the same person in that one. Yeah, are they the two booster gold action figures? Super, oh no, Animal Man. Supernova, hmm. I'm pretty sure, was revealed to be booster gold. I like that there's a Skeets action figure. Yeah. Does that come with booster gold? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, but he couldn't tell the world he was booster gold. Right. Because of Timey Wimey stuff, like in the, the <laughs> Timey Wimey stuff. Time Master stuff. <laughs> He has to let everyone think Booster Gold is a douchey sellout, even though he actually saved the world and is pretty damn heroic. Alright, fair enough. I don't remember much about that. Um, Michael's final pick for his birthday show. Could have picked any number. Any number. Other Grant Morrison comics from other... Mind-expanding consciousness. Other... Drooling. Publishers. I could have gone for a Marvel work or a... Image um, or the thing that I bought you the two paperback covers from the 2000 AD yeah the 2000 yeah. AD stuff could have gone for any of that but, but I'm sticking to DC uh, and Hey Kids Comics is once again a Batman a comic. Batman podcast <laughs> but a fine one at that um, yes 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 go on the cover for Batman 700 hoorah that is by David Finch of mm-hmm. Batman covering himself with his cape on top of a gargoyle with a bat signal appearing behind the Gotham skyline. Indeed. It also had a variant cover by Mike Mignola. Mignola. After Lou Sayer and Schwartz, after Lou Sayer Schwartz and George Bruce of Batman <laughs> and Robin facing a giant red hood. It also had a black and white Mignola variant and a red recolored Finch variant. Um, it's a standard Batman covers himself with his cape and stands on a gargoyle as the bat signal shines over Gotham City cover. But a but good a damn good one. Batman yeah. covers himself while standing in front of Gargoyles. Yeah. All of that. I, I like David Finch's work anyway, so I'm a mark for this. I'm not going to complain it's a poster cover, because it's an anniversary issue. Yes. If you can't do a poster cover on an anniversary issue, when can you do one? On every other one. Yeah. Um, his gloves are Batman Begins gloves. Yeah. Since Batman Begins, they seem to have all decided these gloves are protections against... Um, slice and dice weaponry, haven't they? The forces of evil. Yeah. And like Michael says, yes, the thighs and the, the forearms are a bit large. Yet the wrists are so tiny. But I like that cover. <laughs> yeah. I think it's good. You know what? The only thing that would have made that better it was a wraparound cover. I think that would have been much nicer. It was. It's just a Kamasadam on the back. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, I do especially like the bat signal just peeping out. Yeah. From behind the buildings. Oh, and the fact of coolness. Yes, there's a hint. Because the bat signal is cool. We've established this on previous shows. Yes, it is. And I like the fact that the cape looks like it has some heft to it. Hmm. Sometimes it just kind of sits there, doesn't it? <laughs> what? 
Well, this was approved by the Comics Code Authority. Apparently so. The last 32 money she wasn't. Uh, Did DC not drop the Comics Code comics, like Marvel? Yes, I think they dropped it after Marvel. Marvel dropped it for monetary reasons. So why have they got it back then? They, this isn't. This is Batman 700 is a couple of years old now, dude. Yeah, I know. So when did... Uh, None DC of the new 52 of Comics Code approved. When did DC drop it? I don't know. I thought Marvel dropped the Comics Code Marvel when dropped Stan it. fought against them. No, Stan didn't submit a couple of issues because they were anti-drug and the Comics Code said you weren't allowed to use drugs at all. So published and Stan said, under. screw you, I'm going to publish this story anyway. Right, okay. But Marvel dropped the comics code when Quisada took over. Right, okay. I don't remember when DC did it. Because yeah. they remember they were still sending comics to the Comics Code Authority and they discovered they were just piling up mm. behind a letterbox somewhere and nobody was even there. So they were paying the Comics Code Authority and some guy was sat on his feet up going, give me money, I don't read this filth. Yeah. <laughs> Time and the Batman was done by Grant Morrison, Tony Daniel and Ian Hannon, Frank Quitley, Scott Collins, Alex Sinclair and Tony Avina, Andy Kubert and Brad Anderson, David Finch, Richard Friend and Peter Steigerwald, Steigerwald. with letterer Jared K. Fletcher and editors Janelle Siegel and Mike Mertz. Indubitably. Yes. Then, in ancient Egypt, Batman is being pursued by flying birdmen with bows and arrows. He yells for the professor. He wakes up between Catwoman and Robin, tied, and under the influence of the Maybe Machine. The Joker says that the machine is real and the Professor begs for Batman's forgiveness before being hit by the Joker. The Joker laughs and takes a flick through his joke book and contaminates Robin by inhaling some of Scarecrow's fear gas and exhaling it into Robin's mouth. <laughs> Batman escapes and frees Robin to take care of the Joker, Riddler, Mad Hatcher and the Scarecrow. As Catwoman escapes, Commissioner Gordon and the GCPD show up. Joker tries to escape using the Maybe machine but is knocked out by the dynamic duo. Gordon says that Professor Nichols tips them off, which Batman says is strange. He planned on using the, ma- the machine to alert the police an hour ago. Nichols says he'll make everything right, and as Batman and Robin talk about how their lives could have turned out differently, Nichols sits on the floor in his destroyed lab. Today. The all-new Batman and Robin enter Nichols' lab. The victim, Professor Carter Nichols, shot in the hut, no murder weapon and a smile on his face. A clean cauterized wound and traces of Exelon medication for dementia. Carter Nichols is in his 60s, however, the corpse is in his 80s. Later in Park Road, Dick places a black wreath at the spot where Bruce's parents died. Every year, Bruce did community crime fighting on the anniversary of his parents' death, but with Bruce gone, Dick and Damien have to do it instead. Two civilians run towards Batman and Robin in panic from the bad dudes. As the mutants approach, Batman and Robin take them on and win the fight with no problem. After the mutants being taken care of, Lonai, a local pimp, shows up in one of his hoes, tells him that ba- tells Batman that Mr. Freeze let slip about where the auction Batman wants to know about is taking place. Batman tells Lo- Lonai that tonight every year is special, which means no dealing, no hustling, no pimping, etc. Batman and Robin continue to help out and eat out before showing up at the auction just as the bidding on the Joker's joke book is about to start. Later, Damien and Dick talk about the Nichols case. Damien thinks this is a locked room killer, but Dick says that there isn't. An amateur time traveller, older than he should be on medication, dead in a closed room with a portable laser hole in his chest. A couple of books says it was suicide. Damien has a problem believing in Dick's insane leaps in logic, but Dick says, trust me, it'll all make sense one day. Tomorrow, New Year's Eve in Gotham. A madman named January is holding the city hostage until he gets the Joker's joke book, a countdown to permanent mass psychosis, and Batman. 
pouring down his weaponized Joker venom in the form of rain. Damian Wayne, Batman, races through the streets with Max Roboto, who interrogates about him reprogramming climate control to make Joker zombies, but paid for immunization with his laser eye. He tells Roboto to tell him the location of January, but he spits in Batman's eye, so he leaves him to the giant flesh-eating cannibal rats. He uses the spit to synthesize an antidote which he sends to multiple locations, including Commissioner Barbara Gordon. Batman heads for the sewers where the three Joker zombies ambush him, but he uses Brother Eye to help him. He finds January, Two-Face 2, who has the Joker zombie baby and is sitting in Carter Nichols' old lab next to a dead Nichols, who died 15 years ago with a laser in front of them both. Two-Face 2 attacked, Batman dodges and Nichols wakes up. Then out of a locked door comes a much younger Nichols, who disappears with the dead Nichols. He knows Batman won't stop him. Someone has to go back and alert the police. Batman contacts Barbara. Warren and Mary McGuinness's child is safe. Damien watches Terry McGuinness's Batman. As across the world, multiple Batman Incorporated agents each fight their own fights. No matter when, no matter where, no matter how dark, there will always be Batman and Robin. Well done. Very good synopsis. Um, it's an entire front page of credits. Yes. So it's no wonder they didn't put them in the story. You won't be able to read the page. Mm. Um, I love that the actual splash page is three Batman. One impossible crime. Can you crack the case of time and the Batman? Yeah. Say that with Bill Dozier's voice. Mm. I and like it all, works. I like all the little panels. Yeah, I like the three different panels. Bruce Wayne, Dick Grayson, and Damian Wayne. I even like the Damian one with Alfred. Why has he got a cat? His cat's Alfred. Is it? Yeah. I quite like that. He's called his cat Alfred. Grant Morrison likes cats, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Um, Tony Daniels art's really good in the first chapter of the story. Lots of hyper-detailed panel work, and his rogues gallery looks pretty damn good. And if Robin's costume looks as impractical as ever, well, it's not like it's a costume that even the most hardened of comic book vets have trouble pulling off, is it? Mm. But this is good Tony Daniels. Yeah, it's really good. Why don't you like Tony Daniels? Well... Read the following two issues of this, 701 and 702, mm. which are pretty damn awful. And also his current Detective Comics, uh, see, I'm which not, are pretty damn awful. See, we're on the fence with Detective Comics, aren't we? I like Batman and the Dark Knight. Yeah. You like Batman and... Batman and Robin? We've not been reading Batman and Robin. Have we not? I thought you liked Batman and Robin. Too. Right, okay. But, well, Tony Daniels' art is just really... Really so why bad. is it so good here? I don't know. If he's, these issues which he did with Grant Morrison are really good until issue seven oh one. Right. In which case, it's just. See, I think stuck. this is really, really very good. Mm. I mean, especially the middle panel with Batman and Robin tied up mm. and the rogue just hanging around them. Yeah. It's really good. It's all Adam West as well. Which it, there is an Adam West vibe. To looks this. very silly on this this panel on the next page. Where it's a close up of his eyebrows and nose squinting. Yeah. See, I don't get an Adam West vibe from Batman. But the costumes and the characters... I get an Adam West vibe from, certainly from some of the other characters, yeah. Mm. So, like, uh, the Riddler, especially. Um, I don't know why I like that the Joker hits Carter Nichols with a rubber chicken, but I did. I like his comments <laughs> about the um, tediously sane ha- um, hatter. Yeah. I like how the Joker stops and mutters to himself at one point after a joke and he mutters oh he's running out of steam which is kind of similar when Bill Hicks would stop and mutter I'm just so tired under his breath Mm. on the next page 
he's just like well on the punchline it's like everybody says the Joker's losing his doodle doodle do I do declare chicken licking hasn't been the same since he crossed the road and the punchline was me doodle do doodle do yeah that the Joker is pure D Mark and then Hamill. he just laughs and then just like turns into a corner and lowers his head and just goes I feel funny but but funny's good right yeah. yeah, that's that's a Mark Hamill monologue, isn't it? Yeah. It's really, really good. Um, it does play out like a demented version of the 60s TV show. Because mm-hmm. whatever your opinion of the Adam West TV show, its shadow looms large. I still hear Frank Goshen when the Riddler speaks. And Batman's lines are very much in keeping with the writer's characterisation of him being three steps ahead of everyone else, which can occasionally be tiresome. But it is cool. But it? yeah, I did, I did, I loved his line about it takes the professor three minutes to reset the machine. I'll be out of these restraints in two. It's already over, Joker. Because mm. he's like, he knows this, he's not going to hold Batman. Yeah. And the Joker's insane, but he knows that he's not held him. It's, it's, I love page five as well, Joker Fish get a reference yeah. set in this chapter before Laughing Fish sign of the Joker and the Joker world the theme park that'll kill you could be a reference to the Joker's Rumpus Room Revenge from 1981 mm. it could be but it then again it, it could just be a good oh it could be knocking off Murder World from Arcade in the X-Men comics yeah. uh, bottom of page 5 mm-hmm. Catman why look at that it... oh yeah he does look more Catman than Batman yeah yeah, I'll give you that. The mask, the ears on the mask look more like and a cat than a bat. And look out of proportion to the head. It's just... Well, he's just showing that he's escaped, well, yeah. isn't it? That's why the hands are doing. Um, I find O'Hara's comments on page 7 pretty hilarious. Biggest pop crime bust since the two-faced, clear-faced, no-faced, false-faced team. <laughs> yeah. And and Commissioner Gosling, <laughs> O'Hara, no, just please. please. Oh, dear. Um, I like the circular logic of the story. Mm. Batman reasons that the Joker's plot couldn't possibly have succeeded because they wouldn't even be there having this fight if it had. Yes. Which I know is genius. That's <laughs> up there with the being five DeLoreans at one point in Back to the Future. Yeah. I thought it was great. Riddler calls Batman the caped crusader. So Batman punches him in the face and says, don't do that again. Mm. <laughs> Genuinely laughed at a Grant Morrison comic. Which is something you hardly do. Which is something I very rarely do. Um, the Joker's line about the crucifixion, the children's crusade, Vietnam! Just send me somewhere funny! Which, again, made me laugh out loud. You were there when I was reading this. Yeah. And I came into you, didn't I? I said, You! You did this to me! And you looked at me like, What have I done? You made me like a Grant Morrison comic! Yep. And I did, I loved this. I thought it was hysterical. The thing that confused me, so I'm hoping you can shed okay. some light on this. How does the me- maybe machine work? I have no idea. Because in the story, Batman explains that it's a machine that you're hooked up to that shows you what may have happened if certain events in your life had gone differently. Right? So how is this a time machine? Because that's what it's treated as hmm. later on in the story. But your body doesn't actually seem to go anywhere. So if it's all in your head, then there's no way the Joker's plan could have worked anyway. But, yeah, at the very end it is used. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, Batman says he's planned on using the machine to go back and alert the police, which is ultimately the denouement of the story. So that implies that it does work as a time machine. Or maybe, once you're hooked up, there are two of you. One of you hooked up to the machine. And one of you that goes to the maybe universe. Yeah. 
See, I was a bit confused by that. Which would explain why there are about, like, four different... Yes. Carters. Yeah, I suppose it would do, but I, I got a bit confused. That said, I like the last page of this chapter where Batman says, we are what we are. We can't change what's already done. Which is very pragmatic. Hmm. I liked that a great deal. Um... The next chapter moves into the time where Dick's Batman, and we already see the difference. This Batman actually speaks to the coppers and asks how they are, inquires after their families. Bruce doesn't do that. No. Well, I, I do like about asking the cops about the kids. It's a nice little touch that shows the difference between how Bruce would get the job done, mm. whereas Dick's more concerned in the people. Yeah, Bruce would just show up and do what he's doing before the police got there. Yeah. And then disappear just as they were coming in through the I door. I like how Batman knows about the police's yeah. children to and ask he, about them. He knows, he knows everybody. Yeah. Whereas Bruce probably does know everybody but doesn't care. Yeah. Um, I've said this before, I really don't like Damien at all. I find him an obnoxious little... In this, yeah, he's made me giggle sometimes. Um, hmm. If his story arc was that he will grow... Mm then I could probably buy it. But judging by the Batman that we get in the last story of this issue, that's not the case, is oh, it? Oh, I like Damon as Batman. It's, it's Batman 666, 700, and Batman Incorporated 5. When we see Damien as Batman? Yeah. Yeah. Are they your favourite ones? I've not read Incorporated 5 yet. Well, that's another thing that's on your list for Christmas, isn't it? The it's Batman Incorporated. Not out yet. Batman and Robin Omnibus? Yeah, the Is that the one? Yeah. But Incorporated's not finished yet. Right. Um, I do like that we revisit the tradition of Batman, normally Bruce Wayne, like it says in the story, yeah. leaving a wreath where his parents were shot, which is another nod to a past story. I think there is no hope in Crime Alley mm. from 1975. It's in the bottom of this panel here. Mm. Not only is there a tween Titans poster. A band. But also, Batman's got no bat insignia oh, yeah, on his bat chest. Oh, his chest missing. Mm. He's, maybe he's just ripped it off and thrown it at some bad guys. And like, got a minor in inconvenience. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of getting things back in the next panel, mm-hmm. where does Batman's screamer sticks come from? They just appear in his hands at the top of the next page. Because he actually makes a point of saying, I should pack these again. Mm. Where does he keep them? They're not like Daredevil's billy clubs. They're not stapled to his thighs. Unless they're in like a pouch behind his cape. Yeah, let's go with that. Alright. <laughs> I've just no-prized it, have I? Um, again, a nod not so much to the past, but to the future. The mutants first appeared, or will appear, in The Dark Knight Returns. Well, according to Morrison, mm-hmm. in a recent interview with Comic Book Resources, um, he's writing the mutants more and more as the run comes to a conclusion. Right. As he's working towards them being the norm that they are in The Dark Knight. Well, I was going to say, if Morrison's wacky theory that everything is in continuity yeah then presumably the Dark Knight Returns will be so in continuity so working towards yeah. what the Dark Knight Returns set up right fair enough um there's a really good silent fight scene from Quitley um we don't know the page numbers at this point comics don't don't do page numbers anymore uh, I do like that this Batman and this Robin don't make any jokes no they just get on with it even they, though Dick Grayson probably would did, would Dick Grayson as Batman Sure. Dick Grayson as Robin, yes. Dick Grayson as Nightwing, yes. I don't think that Dick Grayson as Robin would make with the jokes because that's not Batman. Yeah. And Dick Grayson's now Batman. Yeah. He's not really Nightwing or Robin anymore. Yeah. And I don't know enough about Damian Wayne to suggest whether he would make jokes. No, he wouldn't. 
Um, Batman's toothy grin on the last page is, is pretty poor. And creepy. Yeah. Not as creepy as Alex Ross's grinning uh, Batman. Yeah, but Alex Ross's grinning Batman's intentionally creepy. Well, yeah. You get the idea that a Batman smiling would actually be scurrier. Like Harley Quinn says. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when Batman smiles, that's when you're really in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like that idea. Um, but then there's a jarring art change yes. as you turn the page. The last three pages of this chapter are by Scott Collins, looking completely different to the Collins I remember from The Flash, and more noticeably completely different from the rest of the art, not just in this chapter, but in this entire issue. For one, it's painted. Mm -hmm. It's good art, particularly the page that's just a montage of shots of Batman and Robin going about their business, but it's such a stylistic change from the previous page, it hurts the story. It took me out of the story when I turned the page because yeah. I was like what's happened here mm. it's not said this is the beginning of another chapter it's obviously a continuation of the same chapter it's not to say Quitley, Cuba and Daniel have similar art styles because they don't but there are at least different chapters of the story so a change in tone isn't quite as jarring I did like Batman telling the little snot rag that's now Robin that he'd be the worst Batman ever mm. that was quite funny well, I, I, although I don't really like Collins' art mm. I do really like the two pages here, especially the panel of the guy bleeding out on the car, followed by the auction. Yeah, and keeping him alive. It was just like, the, the, the super weapon auction starts in nine minutes. We'll have the guy at AR in two, Robin, just keep him alive. Yeah, Dick Grayson is a pretty cool Batman. Yeah. And no, it's not that it's bad. It's just, it's so completely different from Quitley's work. No, I don't like Collins, is that? But this is part of the same chapter. Yeah. So, could quickly not do another three pages, could he not? Apparently not. Even if the colorist came in and bailed his ass out. <laughs> the, and Dick actually says something quite funny here, like, it'll all make sense one day. Mm. Which probably stands for more than one thing. Probably. Not only is it, like, the case will all make sense one day, but Morrison's arc will, will all, all make sense one day. There's a little funny about the, um, uh, the Batman Incorporated Deluxe Edition hardback. Mm. The bonus features were Grant Morrison's looking back on all the characters and bonus features, and at the end he just says, it'll make sense one day, I promise. Yeah, he said that about um, the Invisibles, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Um, the next chapter of the story is my least favourite. Really? Largely because Damien's now Batman and every bit as obnoxious as an but adult as he was as a kid. Um, it's not not fun. Yeah. It's my least favourite chapter of the story. I can accept to Damien who was a tosser as a kid if the story art was one of his ultimately growing up, but it seems like he's a, a knob when he's older as well. Because it's here that Morrison loses me a bit. The instant he introduces the character, and there's always one yeah. in Morrison's work, who's smarter and snarkier and just generally more stuck up than everyone else in the room. I hate that kind of character. But when, like, in this chapter, that's everyone. Yeah, well, and see Mark Miller writes the same character type as well, doesn't similarities, he? Similarities. Yeah. <laughs> And it's it may have been tolerable once, but now it's just been so overused yeah. by every writer that wants to be Grant Morrison. I.e. Mark Miller. Yeah, I well, not just him. I think it's a criticism that can be levelled against Warren Ellis. Yeah. Although Warren Ellis isn't trying to be Grant Morrison. He's still very snarky. Yeah, his characters still have that snarky, seem-like-the-same-person tone. It's Spider-Jerusalem. Yeah. Again. Um, I mean, it's interesting to note in this future, just a year before the New 52, Barbara Gordon, now a commissioner, mm -hmm. now still the commissioner, sorry, is still in a wheelchair. Mm. So that's a future he didn't see coming. 
Carl Hart. When he was writing this story. And Batman's got his own brother eye. He's really has some for a long time. Like an OMAC. Yeah. Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. made brother eye. Right. Which kicked him severely up the arse. In yes, crisis. it did. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was the brother eyes. Which turned all the OMACs on yeah. everyone. Yeah, so that was Bruce's fault. Yeah. I remember that. Um, re- nice reference to Batman Beyond. Mm. In that Warren and Murray McGuinness are the names of Terry per- Terry's parents in the Batman Beyond cartoon. Yeah. Which I thought was a lovely use of continuity. Nice use of irony. In that, in this story, what happens to young Terry McGuinness is what happens to Tim Drake in the Batman Beyond movie Return of the Joker. We was a Joker baby. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was... Um, I don't know whether that was intentional. I'm not sure. I'm presuming Morrison's probably seen Return of the Joker at some point. Yeah. Or is his only... Well, it can't only be the comics that's in continuity if he's referencing Batman Beyond. And all the the Joker games yeah. in it. And the Joker. Yeah. Because the Batman Beyond comic prior to this was only a TV tie-in, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. They have since done comics continuations of the cartoon. Yes. Haven't they? But, the, but originally the it was the, yeah. But originally it was the the cartoon tie-in, wasn't it? Yes. But see, what's I like how Morrison brings Batman Beyond into the overall Bat mythos. Yeah. I'm still a bit miffed <laughs> that he overwrote Bruce Wayne and replaced him with Damien just to fit his story. See, when I read this, I thought that was Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Because it leaves it ambiguous. But he's dead now. But in the future, six, six, he six, won't six. be. So that was my thinking. That here, yeah. That he doesn't say anywhere that's not Bruce Wayne. But we, you're assuming that it's Damien because of in a previous issue. Yeah, well, is it? Is dead. Yeah, but we know that in the future he's not dead. If everything fits into continuity, then Dark Knight Returns and Batman Beyond haven't happened yet. So in terms of that, then Bruce Wayne has to come back alive at some no, point. Dark Knight Returns would have happened before the Damien chapter. Yes, but Batman Beyond wouldn't, would it? Yeah, that comes after. Right. So that's so, Damien. But I, re- I read that as being Bruce. In between yeah. the, the um, <laughs> Dick Grayson chapter and the Damien chapter, in between that is where Dark Knight happens. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Bruce has to come back alive for that to happen? No, Bruce... Okay, Bruce... Okay. Dark Knight Returns has to happen after he's resurrected. When Dick Grayson is Batman... Yes. Batman then comes back and does his Batman Incorporated stuff. Yes, and then Dark okay. Knight Returns. Years later, at the end of his career, he comes back as Dark Knight Returns. Yes. Batman then dies... Dick, um, Damien Wayne becomes Batman to avenge the death of Bruce Wayne. So Batman Beyond, and then that can't be Bruce Wayne. Damien then becomes well, the Terry, Terry McGinnis' his mentor. Yes, right. See, I read that as being Bruce Wayne, but I've not read the rest of Grant Morrison's run. Wow. So, um, back to the time travel nonsense. Carter Nichols appears back in time and takes old Carter with him, rendering this future a maybe. Which ties in with the last four pages, where we see a number of maybe futures. Batman Beyond, Batman One Million, with a nif- lovely little cameo from Robin the Toy Wonder. Well, they're all, it's all the same, this oh, is all going that. on at the same time. Because it's from Batman Incorporated. Well, it's hinting that, yeah. But right. I, I did love the final shot of the Gotham City PC, PC? PD, hmm. aping the cover of Gotham Central number one. Yeah. And the final page of Batman and Robin just swimming above Gotham. Mm-hmm. So all these multiple Batmans. Yeah. Batmen. Yes. Right. Okay. Because, it's because of Batman Incorporated. Yeah. Which I've not read. No. Okay. Um, I really liked this. I really did enjoy it. Whilst there are references to the overarching Morrison mythology that I'm sure I didn't get, 
Because mm. I've not read the whole thing. Well, it can be read in its own. Yeah, it, it works as a standalone anniversary issue, doesn't it? Mm. Um, Damien's still a tour rag, but the telling of the story across different time periods and into possible futures was very well done. Which is kind of like how this shows what Nightfall, Prodigal and Batman and Robin try mm. to show, that Bruce Wayne isn't Batman, Batman's an icon. A symbol that anyone can be Batman. Do you think? Yeah. But nobody but Bruce Wayne can be Batman. Well, I think that's what the end that this entire issue is trying to show on Batman Incorporated is that you can be anyone but you can put a mask on and then you are Batman see I think only Bruce Wayne is the Batman the Batman yes yeah. but to be but other people Batman. can be Batman yeah. but Bruce Wayne is the Batman yes fair enough um, Morrison reigns his tricks in in this one doesn't he hmm. some of the dialogue's very funny the peek into possible futures very well done. And with a few exceptions, he tells a very fun story. The art's pretty damn good throughout, despite the chair in change I mentioned earlier. This I thoroughly enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. This felt like an anniversary issue of a kind that we're not going to get again under the new 52, because we can't have an issue 800, can we? No. Well, not for another 70-odd years, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um... It also feels like a proper anniversary issue because there's a pin-up section in the back. There is. My favourite's been by Gwilym Marsh, which is a, a shot of the Joker, which is fantastic, with um, a shaving knife in his hand, say, next! Um, no, and I the do. one of Tim Sale. Yes. I like the, the Tim Sale one. The second Dustin Guyon one, though. It yeah. just looks like a variant cover for Batman Street I was thinking Gotham. that. Do you think... Because it says Batman Streets of Gotham. Gotham yeah. I thought exactly the same thing. Is that a cover for Streets of Gotham that they never used? Yeah. So they thought, oh, let's just throw it in as a poster mm. and see what happens. See if we get away with it. No one will notice. Everything's been rebooted in a year. Um, there's a cross-section of the Batcave... I like the Sinkiewicz one. You like the Bill Sinkiewicz one? Yeah. That's fair enough. A cross-section of the Batcave, which are always fun. Mm. We always love cross-sections of the Batcave. Particularly of note, sub-level 7, purpose only known to the Batman. Mm. Is that something that's going to come into play later on, or has done? I have no idea. Or has it just not been mentioned? It's not as detailed as the Bird one in Batman Captain America. Mm. Or certainly as the Jim Lee one yeah. in All-Star Batman. But I love that the Bat poles are still there. Yeah, <laughs> that just amused me I don't know why it did it just did and there is a black and white preview of Batman Odyssey and the art just looks awful um, was Batman Odyssey just insane? I have no idea uh, and there's an the advert art, I thought the art was awful I thought it was, the art was saving grace I can point out many problems with that art just from that preview if you want well you can do if you want there's an advert for Arkham Asylum and Beware the Red Hood go on point out the problems with the art okay that Batman looks silly. The mask looks silly. The hand looks silly. I don't mind the hand. Okay. Um, those goons on the bottom panel look silly. That guy there looks silly. I, I think they look fine. Batman looks silly. He's all wobbly and wibbly and everything. Just wibbly wobbly. All wobbly. That gun. He's not aiming that gun. There is no way he's aiming that gun. That's all silly. They're stupid. He can't be possibly stood like that. He can't be shot in... That punch, that's not a punch, that like he just broke his own arm. And he does look like he's punching him in a completely different way from the body is reacting. Yeah, on, on, the, on the next page. But I'm sure there's an explanation for this. Uh, okay, the, the, the art, the, it's just... See, I don't, I don't mind the art. And then what is it, on the cover or whatever? See, the cover, you've passed the cover. The preview of the cover was a couple of pages Where is early. it where you get shot in the arm? The, the cover. That, on the cover, the, you don't get, what, why did you get, how do you get shot in the arm like that? Through the arm. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. 
<laughs> it's, it's like he's, he's taken his reputation as a good artist and just gone, you know what, I'm just going to do something bad now. Because I've seen Neil Adams' artwork, that is very good. Yeah. Just Joker's not that. five-way revenge. Or his recent stuff, which is very bad. You're just not a fan of his evolution as an artist. As part, as part of the Bendis reading, I had uh, to read one of his issues. Didn't he do he an did, issue of Avengers? He did a point one, mm. which is very, very, very... So you won't be picking up his new X-Men book then? No. No. Okay. Um, do you have anything else to say, birthday boy? Uh, nope nope Nope-dee nope 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 Okie dokie. Well, that about wraps it up for this birthday over, edition. Other than, other than, I quite like Steve Dillon as an artist. <laughs> Um, old episodes are up on the Two True Freaks network. Go and download them because yeah. we're very proud of them. Mm. Well, yeah, we are. We stand by them. We stand by them. Warts and all. We stand by them with a hunk head. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're not. They're, we're a couple of episodes in now, and I've listened to a few more since, and we're not. They're not that bad. Okay. They're not. They're not as bad as that first one. No. Where we were still finding out. Which one are we up to now? I put up the Spider-Man reboot one today. No. So that one's just gone up. So episode 9, episode 10, something like that. No, um, coming up next week, it's my last spotlight on choice. Nobody's taken me up on my Facebook thing to try and guess who we were going to have. Someone, so Steve Nobody. Rogers took me up. Nobody, nobody's joined in with the fun. What's the point of Facebook? Uh, the week after that, it's the final spotlight, which will be Michael's turn. And then... The Longbow Hunters, which I'm very excited for. I love the Longbow Hunters. Okay. Um, we've got a couple of things penciled in for the following season, which will be abbreviated, because as of New Year, we will be exclusively on the Two True Freaks Network, which means we'll have to record another a new promo, because even the one Scott yep. made us will have Podomatic at the end, won't it? Yep. So we'll have to do a new promo. Um, we want to do Prodigal, that's coming up. And we're going to do the zero issues. And we've got... We'll have to do the zero issues. Erring mm-hmm. on the 22nd of November. Yeah. 2012. Yeah. Hey Kids Comics 100th edition. Yeah. Hmm. We've, we've talked about what we're going to do, haven't we? Yeah. So we'll see how that pans out. I think we should do the zero issues, like, after my last Spotlight show. Why? Because the zero issues are out this month. Yeah, but we don't get them until next month. We get do we? At the end of the month, I suppose. Well, well, we'll see how that pans out. So next week it's my choice. All three of my comics are here. Hear them wobble. wobble. But I'm not telling you what it is. No. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you very much. Email us in. Yes. Say hi. Go and download old episodes. If you don't email us in, I will be half as short. No, she will be half as long. Yeah. That'll do as well. We hope you enjoyed Michael's birthday show. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Happy birthday I've come to wish you an unhappy birthday Cause you're evil and you lie And if you should die I may feel slightly sad But I won't cry Loved and lost And some may say and usually it's nothing, surely you're happy it should be this way. 
I say no I'm gonna kill my dog May the line sag The line sag heavy and deep tonight Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idols Hands to Do production and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. That's T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Lipson, L I B S Y N dot com. So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Little Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.